Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax and enjoy the show. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay and Palmolive Shave Creams for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave bring you Our Miss Brooks, transcribed and starring Eve Arden. Once again, for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, like most school teachers, Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, has been exposed to her share of puppy love. I'll say I have. It's getting so I can't look a puppy in the face without flinching. <laughs> but the kids at school are nothing compared to the case I discovered at home between my landlady, Mrs. Davis, and Horace Barlow the school's new Janet, a basement custodian. <laughs> Although she met him a week ago at a school tea, up until Thursday morning at breakfast, she kept denying anything but a passing interest in him. Please, Connie, just because Horace Barlow has been over a few times is no reason for people to jump to conclusions. My goodness, Horace isn't jumping to conclusions. At his age, Horace is lucky if he can limp to conclusions. <laughs> But I've seen you two together, Mrs. Davis. As and... far as I'm concerned, I think of Horace as just a real nice boy. And he is, too. A real nice 68-year-old boy. <laughs> he happens to be 54, Connie. He told me so himself. I know, Mrs. Davis. And Jack Benny is 39. <laughs> Not that I'm criticizing your friendship. Far from it. I'm delighted that Horace is so genuinely fond of you. Oh, Connie... Horace doesn't even know I'm alive. Well, don't let that worry you. It's hard to tell about him most of the time. <laughs> anyway, I'm simply not interested in anything but the most casual relationship. Heavens, if I were thinking seriously, I'd try to find out something about the man, wouldn't I? Haven't you? Definitely not. I'm not even mildly curious. I haven't the slightest idea where he keeps his $10,000 life insurance policy. <laughs> and I have no knowledge whatsoever of how he got his leg wounded in the Mexican War, for which he gets a $53 a month pension. <laughs> Why, I don't even know in what bank he keeps his $2,619 savings account. Shame on you. You haven't even got his social security number. S498265. <laughs> Oh, that's Walter Denton. He's driving me to school. Be right there, Walter. Now, is there anything you want me to say to Mr. Barlow for you if I happen to see him at school? Not a thing, Connie. Okay. There's no necessity of even mentioning to him that I'm not busy tonight. I see. And there's no need for any remarks about the cake I'm baking today being too big for one person to finish alone. I'll be as silent as the tomb. And above all, it would be utterly shameless if you were to hear that I don't want to waste the box of cigars I bought yesterday. <laughs> you can trust me implicitly, Mrs. Davis. I won't say a word to Mr. Barlow. I'll just hit him on the head and drag him home. <laughs> I'm glad you picked me up early this morning, Walter. I've got an errand to do for Mrs. Davis before my first class. 
I'll get you there with the speed of a gazelle, Miss Brooks. <laughs> oh, look, by the way, how's Mrs. Davis's romance with Mr. Barlow coming along? Oh, have you noticed that, too? I think it's the cutest thing in the world. Mrs. Davis actually has a bad case of puppy love. It is cute, considering she's in her second puppyhood. <laughs> no disrespect intended, you understand. After all, what could be more romantic than two lonely old people encountering the grand passion in the sere and yellow leaf of life? Oh, that's absolutely poetic, Walter. The burning desires of youth long past They look now for the subdued glow of companionship The warm and simple pleasures That two elderly people in love Can share together I can see them now Soaking their feet in the same pan of Epsom salt <laughs> I'll bet you'd like to find romance at that age, Miss Brooks At the rate I'm going now, I'm counting on it <laughs> Walter, I just assume you don't mention the subject at school. It might be a source of embarrassment to Mr. Barlow. My trap is sealed, Miss Brooks. Now, what's the errand you're going to do for Mrs. Davis this morning? Well, off the record, I'm going to invite Mr. Barlow over to the house tonight. He's been a little backward about asking for a date. I get it. You're Mrs. Davis's John Alden. Now all you got to do is get Mr. Barlow to invite Mr. Boynton over for you, and you're all set. <laughs> Meeting's adjourned. Hi, Miss Brooks You're pretty early today, aren't you? Hello, Harriet I've got to deliver a message to the custodian Have you seen him? Oh, yes Mr. Barlow just went into his office Isn't it wonderful, Miss Brooks? I don't know I've never been in his office <laughs> I mean about Mr. Barlow and Mrs. Davis. They're crazy about each other. Of course, it's a big secret. Couldn't be a bigger secret if they took out an ad. <laughs> Is there anything more romantic than the mellow romance of old age? Now, please, Harriet. To think of two people finding love at a time of life when others are preparing to pass on. <laughs> two people walking hand in hand in the twilight of life. Yes, there's nothing like a brisk walk before passing on. <laughs> well, I won't keep you any longer. Far be it from me to delay Mrs. Davis's emissary of love. Good luck in your mission, John Alden. Thank you, Priscilla. Come <laughs> in. I hope I'm not disturbing you, Mr. Barlow, but there's something I wanted to ask you. Well, then go ahead and ask. <laughs> if you want to get apples, you got to shake the tree. <laughs> now, what is it? It's just this. I was wondering if tonight, that is, if you haven't any other plans, Mrs. Davis isn't doing anything, and I'm sure she'd be pleased if you wanted to drop over. Well, that's right neighborly. Would uh, you like me to drop over? Of course. I'm sure you and Mrs. Davis will have a lovely evening together. Are you planning on staying in, Miss Brooks? I suppose so, Mr. Barlow, but I'm sure that at your age you don't need any chaperone. You're right about that. Maybe we could send Mrs. Davis to a movie. <laughs> send Mrs. Davis to a movie? Sure. Oh, oh. Oh, there's no sense in my trying to hide it any longer. 
Why, the only reason I've been coming around Mrs. Davis's place is to be near you. Near me? But you, you've been making dates with Mrs. Davis. Well, naturally. You gotta slip the drones a little, honey, if you wanna get next to the queen bee. <laughs> you, Mr. Barlow, are barking up the wrong hive. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I, I simply can't believe it's even happening. I couldn't believe it myself. I just couldn't understand the feeling that swept over me when I first saw you, Miss Brooks. In fact, since that time, I've had my glasses changed twice. <laughs> but it's still the same. I keep asking myself, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Three quarters of it, I wasn't even born. <laughs> Look, Mr. Barlow, there's a... There's a great difference in our ages. Oh, nonsense, Miss Brooks. I just don't believe in age. Well, neither do I. I've been standing it off for years. <laughs> I mean, if you'll think this over for a while, you'll realize that it just couldn't work out. Why not? Is there somebody else playing the piano in your front parlor? <laughs> no, but Mr. Boynton plays the ukulele on my back porch. <laughs> We've been going together for quite a while now. You mean that biology fella? Oh, shucks, he's just an unsophisticated kid. Why, you couldn't warm him up if you stuck a Bunsen burner under him. <laughs> You've been peeking. <laughs> that is, Mr. Boynton's just shy about expressing his feelings. He ain't got no feelings, if you ask me. Leastwise, not like I have, especially since I met you. Why, I just knew today was going to bring some excitement into my life. I got the strangest sensation right after breakfast. Maybe something fell into your gruel. <laughs> There's no two ways about it, sis. I'm smitten. <laughs> well, would it unsmit you if I told you that I was engaged to Mr. Boynton? Engaged? Oh, but he wasn't even over to your place the nights I visited Mrs. Davis. He must have been working. If you come over tonight, I'm sure he'll be there. Well, seeing is believing. Well, I'll drop by, Miss Brooks, but I still say when it comes to your bringing me messages from Mrs. Davis, speak for yourself, John Alden. There's no use talking. These man-tailored suits have got to go. <laughs> Your teeth with Colgate's Colgate Dental Cream. It cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. Why to clean your teeth. Colgate toothpaste. Cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. Why to clean your teeth. Colgate Dental Cream cleans your breath while it cleans your teeth. And the Colgate way stops tooth decay best. Yes, the Colgate way is the most thoroughly proved and accepted home method of oral hygiene known today. Over two years' research showed brushing teeth right after eating with Colgate Dental Cream helped stop more decay for more people than ever before reported in dentifrice history. The Colgate way stopped tooth decay best. No other dentifrice, ammoniated or not, offers such conclusive proof. And you should know that Colgate's, while not mentioned by name, was the only toothpaste used in the research on tooth decay recently reported in Reader's Digest. So always follow the Colgate way to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and stop tooth decay best. Brush your teeth with Colgate's Colgate Dental Cream. It cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. What a cleans your teeth. And the Colgate way stops tooth decay best. Yeah. 
chagrined to find out that Horace Barlow was more interested in me than he was in Mrs. Davis. This was one triangle I was determined would not be eternal, not even overnight. Therefore, at lunchtime, I headed for Mr. Boynton's table in the cafeteria. But just as I got halfway to it... Oh, Mr. Conklin, I'm terribly sorry, sir. You're slipping, Miss Brooks. You only knocked two dishes off my lunch tray today. I guess I didn't watch where I was going. Obviously. When you do, you get the whole tray. (laughs) Well, luckily, nothing happened to your apple pie. The plate is broken, but the pie is intact. Here. Thank you. Even more luckily, nothing seems to have gotten on my clothes. No, sir. I've never seen you look so neat. White carnation and all. I spoke too soon. That's vanilla ice cream. (laughs) This never would have happened, sir, but I'm terribly preoccupied today. This must be preoccupied day at Madison High. I've had nothing but trouble with our new school custodian for the same reason. You mean Mr. Barlow? Yes, yes. He forgets about the furnace. He forgets to fix the pipes. The old goat acts as if he was in love. Maybe he is in love. Mr. Barlow? But who could a 70-year-old codger be in love with? He happens to be 54. (laughs) Yes, and Jack Benny is 39. (laughs) Horace Barlow in love. (laughs) At his age, he probably can't tell the difference between a woman and a kangaroo. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Well, if you'll excuse me, I'll be hopping off to lunch. (laughs) No doubt I'll run into you later in the day, Mr. Conklin. It is with that thought in mind that I carry every possible form of accident and hospitalization insurance. (laughs) Good day, Miss Brooks. Good day, Mr. Conklin. He's got a lot of nerve just because a person's lived a few more years than some other person. I don't like to interrupt, Miss Brooks, but if you keep talking to yourself, you'll make an eavesdropper out of me. Oh, I'm sorry, Walter. I've had a little shock this morning. You see, I spoke to Horace Barlow a short time ago about making a date with Mrs. Davis. What'd he say? He says he's not interested in Mrs. Davis. He's smitten with somebody else. Somebody else? But he can't do that to Mrs. Davis. Oh, she's a very sensitive little lady, and she's nuts about him. She'll be terribly hurt. That's what I'm afraid of. He doesn't know when he's well off. I'd like to see the hunk of crow bait he's fallen for. (laughs) Now, just a minute, Walter. It so happens that Mr. Barlow thinks he's in love with me. With you? But that's illegal. (laughs) It's unthinkable. It's a... Let's just call it unusual. (laughs) Actually, Walter, I'm extremely worried about the situation. Mrs. Davis and I have been friends for too long to let a thing like this come between us. Well, why don't you just tell old Barlow to go peddle his papers? I did, practically. I even told him I was engaged to Mr. Boynton. That's what I'm worried about. They're both coming over tonight, and I've got to prove it. Well, what's so tough about that? I'm sure Mr. Boynton will cooperate. You are? Sure. For one night. Oh. <laughs> now, the next thing you've got to do is get Mrs. Davis out of the house tonight. Because if she caught you and Mr. Boynton acting as if you were engaged, 
she'd know something was rotten in Denmark. <laughs> what a sweet way to put it. But, Walter, how do I get Mrs. Davis out of the house? Well, easy. There's an old bachelor friend of my dad staying at the house for a couple of days, uh, Mr. Gordon. I'm sure he'd like a date with a nice, clean-cut character like Mrs. Davis. And I'll ask her to go out with him as a favor to my folks. What about Mr. Barlow? She expects him tonight. Well, just tell her he couldn't make it. Say his blood pressure hit a new high or something. <laughs> now, you go find Mr. Boynton, and I'll call home and make sure Mr. Gordon's available to act as Davis bait for the evening. <laughs> See you later, Miss Brooks. All right, Walter, and thanks. Me and the night and the music. Da, 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 da. Oh, Mr. Boynton. I've got to talk to you right away. What's wrong, Miss Brooks? It's about Mrs. Davis. You know, she's got a crush on the school custodian, Mr. Barlow. But unfortunately, he's head over heels in love with somebody else. <laughs> Please, Miss Brooks, don't, don't make me laugh while I'm drinking coffee. Mr. Barlow's an old man. What kind of a shriveled-up prune could he fall for? <laughs> Why does it have to be a prune? For all you know, Mr. Barlow could be crazy about a nice, young, firm, fuzzy peach. <laughs> Besides, he's only 48. Why, he's 70 at least. And not what you'd call in prime condition. Why, his hyperthyroidism is apparent, and his incipient arteriosclerosis masking cardiac decompensation was evident to me after one glance. It's a good thing you didn't take a second glance. He'd be a goner. <laughs> the truth is, Mr. Boynton, that Mr. Barlow's been coming to our place just so he could be near me. <laughs> if I'd known you were going to get so excited, I'd have worn my raincoat. <laughs> Here, use this napkin. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Brooks, but I, I couldn't help exploding. Do you mean to tell me Mr. Barlow is in love with you? That's right. We hyperthyroids have to stick together. <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton, I know it's an absurd situation, but my only real concern is Mrs. Davis. I've got to discourage Mr. Barlow once and for all, and, you, and you've got to help me. Well, me? Well, what can I do? Well, he's coming over to our place tonight. I invited him this morning on behalf of Mrs. Davis. That's when he told me how he felt about me, and that's when I told him something utterly fantastic. What did you tell him? that you and I were engaged to be married. Here's the napkin. <laughs> engaged to be married? But, Miss Brooks, that, that's utterly fantastic. I'm glad I said it first. <laughs> Don't you see, Mr. Boynton, this is very important to someone who's very important to me. Mrs. Davis is just about the best friend I've got. Well, if that's the case, Miss Brooks, I, I guess the least I can do is cooperate. Will you really, Mr. Boynton? Sure. For one night. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy, I'm full. That was a very fine dinner, Miss Brooks. I'm glad you liked it, Mr. Boynton. I opened it all by myself. <laughs> I hope Mr. Gordon took Mrs. Davis to a nice place for dinner. He appears to be a jolly old fellow, doesn't he? Oh, yes, indeed. And I noticed he gave you a pretty thorough once-over when he was introduced. You seem to pack quite a wallop for these elderly Joes. That's me, the Cleopatra of the cardiac case. <laughs> but I'd better clear away these dishes. Mr. Barlow will be over any minute. Oh, if that's the case, shouldn't we be getting into the mood? 
The mood? Oh, yes, we're supposed to be engaged, aren't we? Oh, that mood. Why, <laughs> Mr. Boynton, I can hardly believe my ears. Why? There's no sense making a chore out of this thing. We might as well have some fun doing it. <laughs> fun doing it? Well, certainly. Now, now, let's get started. Get started? Well, the quicker the better. Quicker the better? Of course, come on. Come on? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, sure. You wash and I'll dry. <laughs> So much for the hopes of Connie Brooks, girl dreamer. <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton, working in the kitchen is the way married people would get into the mood. Engaged couples do their work in the parlor with soft lights. Okay, we'll take a big basin of water and do the dishes in the parlor. <laughs> Sometimes I wish you were ugly. Come on, Mr. Boynton, I'll attend to the dishes later. Let's sit down in the living room, hmm? All right, Miss Brooks. It, it isn't too healthy to commence working right after a meal anyway. That must be Mr. Barlow. Just make yourself comfortable. I'll let him in. Well, here I am, Brooksy. Fit as a fiddle and twice as musical. Come in, Mr. Barlow. <laughs> I fixed a little dinner for my fiancé this evening. We've just finished eating it. Follow me, won't you? Your fiancé? Oh, then you mean you actually... Hello, darling. Did you miss me? Miss you? I hated to leave you alone for so many seconds, but I just had to let Mr. Barlow in. You remember Mr. Barlow, don't you, dear? Oh, of course. How are you, Mr. Barlow? Snappy's a cookie and twice as full of ginger. <laughs> but let's get to the point. Miss Brooks here told me that you two are engaged. Is that true? Well, yes. Yes, it is. Well, then how come nobody around school's heard anything about it? Because we wanted it that way. We've been secretly engaged for over six months now, haven't we, darling? We certainly have, Miss Brooks. <laughs> Miss Brooks? Why does he call you Miss Brooks if you're going to be married? He doesn't like any display of affection in front of company. Let's sit down, shall we? Mr. Barlow, draw up a chair, won't you? And, sweetheart, you draw up a chair and we'll sit down. We... Miss Brooks, I worked out with the basketball team yesterday And my knees are a little weak It may be a foul But I'll never get a shot like this again <laughs> Sit down, dear There we are Comfy? Uh, yeah hmm. Seems mighty strange to me Most engaged folks I've seen Act a little more demonstrative than you do But we're mad for each other Aren't we, darling? Yeah Mad. <laughs> you know, dearest, you you haven't kissed me in five minutes. What? I said you haven't kissed me in five minutes. What are we going to do about that? Let's wait another five, huh? <laughs> What's the matter, darling? You want to kiss me, don't you? Uh, maybe it's me, Miss Brooks. No, I'm positive he doesn't want to kiss you. <laughs> You mean he doesn't want to kiss me in your presence? I'm sure that wouldn't stop my great, big, handsome lover boy, would it, dearest? Certainly not. Give me your cheek. There. Wow. <laughs> now, how about one to get me down off the ceiling? Uh, maybe I ought to go. But why, Mr. Barlow? You just got here. I know, but won't I be interrupting something? Only if you go. 
I mean, stick around a little while longer. I'll see who it is. Don't move, either of you. Sorry I had to disturb you, Connie, but I forgot my key again. Mrs. Davis, what are you doing home so early? Here, let me help you off with your coat and eyeglasses. Mr. Gordon showed me the most wonderful time, Connie. But he has a business appointment first thing in the morning, so we had to cut our date a bit short. Oh, uh, who's that in the living room? That's Mr. Boynton. Oh, I see. And who's the man in the other chair? That's Mr. Boynton, too. He's awfully restless tonight. <laughs> oh, now I see who that is. It's Mr. Barlow. But you told me he wasn't coming over tonight. He must have changed his mind. Listen, Mrs. Davis, when two people have a beautiful friendship, they've got to do everything in their power to keep it from breaking up, right? Mm. Let's talk later, dear. I've got to get these shoes off at once. Mr. Gordon just danced my tootsies into a stupor. He's a wonderful man, Connie. Uh, that's why I want you to do me a little favor. A favor? Yes, when you go back into the living room. What do you want me to do, Mrs. Davis? Brush off that other old creep for me, will you? <laughs> Mr. Barlow? Yes. I haven't the heart to hurt his feelings. Well, it'll save a lot of explanations, I guess, but I know I'm going to get two birds with one stone. What do you mean, Connie? As soon as the old duck is gone, my little lovebird will take off like a wounded pelican. <laughs> returns in just a moment, but first, the case of the close scrape featuring John W. Baker, Justice of the Peace. Here's what Mr. Baker told us. Listen. Here's exactly what happened. Shaving was just one close scrape after another for me, and then I discovered palm olive lather shave cream and a new different way to shave. Palm olive's oceans of rich, thick lather ended my worries about scrapes, burns, and nicks. Why, even in cold or hard water, that palm olive lather way is super smooth, Super comfortable. Take John W. Baker's advice, men. The new palm olive lather way gets beards really soft, and it provides a protective film that actually floats your razor's cutting edge. You get a clean, close shave every time without worry about scraping or nicking, even in cold or hard water. John W. Baker and 1,200 other men tested palm olive lather cream following package directions. And three out of four reported smoother, more comfortable shaves the Palmolive Shave Cream way, no matter how they shaved before. Better yet, Palmolive Lather Shave Cream. Remember, even in cold or hard water, the Palmolive Lather way means smoother, more comfortable shaves. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I told Mr. Barlow that Mrs. Davis had returned home with a bad headache, and he left the house after threatening to call her up very soon. Then, as I was about to barricade the door against Mr. Boynton's next move, he addressed me. Well, I'm sorry Mrs. Davis doesn't feel well, Miss Brooks. Is she lying down in her room? Yes, she is, Mr. Boynton. Well, that leaves just the two of us, doesn't it? Yes, but don't be nervous. It's much too early for you to think of leaving. Well, I'm not thinking of leaving, Miss Brooks. You and I still have plenty of unfinished business to attend to. Unfinished business? Oh, certainly. You and I? That's right. After all, somebody's got to do those dinner dishes. Suppose you wash and I'll dry. <laughs> Better yet, you wash and dry. I've got another engagement. Oh, another engagement? Sure. If I hurry, I can catch Mr. Barlow before he gets on the bus. <laughs> 
Joe Burnsmith reminding you to tune in next week to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Palmolive Shave Creams for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written by Al Lewis, with the music of Wilbur Hatch. Ladies, now with new improved Vell, V-E-L, you can save 90% of dishwashing work. Just soak dishes in Vell suds a while. Dishes and glassware will soak sparkling clean. No washing, no wiping, no scouring with Vell. Only the stickiest dishes need just the touch of a cloth. Rinse, and they'll gleam without wiping. Soak pots and pans in Vell suds, too. And most of them will get shiny clean without scouring. What's more, Vell is extra mild to hands. So get new Vell. Save 90% of dishwashing work. If you like mysteries that are as full of chuckles as chills, be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. North every Tuesday over this same network. Don't miss the exciting and laughable adventures of these amateur detectives. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This program was transcribed. Stay tuned now for Jack Benny. This is CBS, where our Miss Brooks holds her classes every Sunday at a Columbia Broadcasting System. America, you're beautiful. Why did you know that since we launched the Uncola campaign, you've started to think of 7-Up as an alternative to a cola? Why, some of you have even asked for a hamburger and the Uncola. That's the old spirit. Go out there and try it with Mom's apple pie. America, the Uncola wants you. Seven up from sea to shining sea. The Amos and Andy Show, a full half hour of entertainment with... I'm Gabby Gibson. Yes, I'm Gabby Gibson. This is Sapphire Stevens, and I want you to meet my sister from down south. <laughs> Hello. Rod Gluskin and his orchestra. And those famous... Delta Rhythm Today, the Kingfisher's wife, Sapphire, is spending most of the afternoon in the beauty shop for one of her regular treatments. And finding herself short of money, she has phoned the Kingfish to come over immediately with the cash. Andy agreed to walk over with the Kingfish, and they are approaching the beauty shop now. I've always wanted to see what goes on inside of one of these places, Kingfish. Oh, yeah, you can go in. Is this the beauty shop right here, this Mamie Laverne? Andy, don't say Mamie. Look at the sign there, M-M-E. That spells mmm. <laughs> it's the abbreviation for the French word monsieur. That's what it is. Well, let's get on in there. Yeah, Sapphire ought to be ready to leave the place for it now. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Oh, uh, hello, Miss. Uh, I am uh, Mrs. George Stevens. I come here from a wife. Her name is Mrs. George Stevens. Oh, yes. Mrs. Sapphire Stevens, I believe. Now, let me look at my book and see what project she is. Miss Sapphire Stevens. Mm -hmm. mm, let me see. Is she the facial massage and quaff cure or manicure shampoo and eyebrow pluck? No, I think she's the wrinkle smooth chin tightening general overhauling. <laughs> oh, yes, I believe she's almost ready. She's just getting a little touch up now. A uh, touch up? Yes, just touching up near the roots of her gray hair. Well, my wife ain't got no gray hair. Oh, come, come, Mr. Stevens. 
Yeah, what do you think she had on the roots of her hair, Kingfish? Powder? <laughs> Will you wait out here and I'll go back and see if he's ready? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, say, Andy, look back there. See that door open there? Yeah. There's a woman getting a finger wave. Yeah, I wonder what a woman wants with wavy fingers. Huh? <laughs> hey, look at that booth over there, Andy. Look at that. Yeah. There's a woman sitting there with a bucket on top of her head. That's electric dryer, son. Oh, looks awful on her. Better looking in some of the new hats they got, I know that. Hey, look here, there's a door that's open a little, but you can't see nothing. I tell you what let's do. Let, let's tiptoe down there near it. Maybe we can hear some gossip. Yeah. Come on, quiet now, Andy. How would you like to have a little curl in front, Miss Coldright? Well, let's try it. By the way, Miss Coldright, I see your friend Miss Henrietta is in one of the rear booths getting fixed up today. That Henrietta woman's no friend of mine no more. Have you all had a fight, Miss Coldright? No, but my husband, Mr. Coldright, has told me plenty. You know, Henrietta works in the same office as Mr. Coldright, and Mr. Coldright say he don't want me going around with Henrietta because all she's got on her mind is men. Mr. Coldright says Henrietta comes to work at the office in a tight-fitting satin dress and tries to be so attractive to all the men. And Mr. Coldright don't want me to spoil my reputation by running around with a girl like Henrietta. Oh, I tell you. Uh, come on, Andy, come on. Uh, they better not turn the sun lamp on her. That woman would get a tan. And tongue, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that Mr. Courtright certainly hates Henrietta, don't he? Yeah. Oh, Mr. Stevens, Miss Stevens is ready now. You can go on back. She's in the last booth on the right. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Come on, Annie. Come on with me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, Kingfish. You mean to say that women is in all these booths here getting fixed up? Yeah, we, wait a minute. Uh, here's another door next to the end there that's open. Let's listen. Uh, how do you want your hair done this morning, Miss Henrietta? Must I comb it up? No, you better comb it down. I got a luncheon date with Mr. Cartwright, and he says he loves my hair hanging on my shoulders. That man Cartwright gets around, don't he? Yeah. <laughs> he sure do. Yeah. Well, well uh, let's get on in here with Sapphire. Come on. George, is that you? Oh, uh, yeah, that's me, honey. Uh, Andy's with me. Well, you and Andy come on in. Sorry I'm late, but I have to wait almost an hour. Yeah, well, when is it going to start to work on you? What are you talking about, George? <laughs> they have finished with me. By the way, Andy, how do you like my hair done up on top like this? It'll look good. Covers your bald spot. <laughs> I also have a facial, George. If you look real close, you'll see that they done took the crow's feet away from my eyes. Mm-hmm, yeah. They took away the crow's feet already, but the tracks are still there. <laughs> you just shut your mouth and give me five dollars. All right, here you is. And I'll see you at home. All right, all right. Come on, Andy. Spending five dollars and she still looks bad. <laughs> yeah, well, one good thing with her, you ain't got to worry about Mr. Courtright. No, no, he <laughs> I know one thing. I ain't never going to get married because the upkeep on a woman's face alone would keep a man broke. Boy, this expense cures me a marriage. I'm going to stay single and just go breezing along with the breeze. you so sweet to me around the house today, honey. I don't give you all the money I got. Well, George, I might as well tell you. One of my relatives is coming to stay with us. Well, that's all. If you was figuring on that mother of yours coming around here and boss me and run my house, I'd go throw up the sponge. Now, wait a minute. Wait I... a minute. Your mother is the meanest woman I done ever had in this house. Mother ain't coming. She is the worst. She, uh, uh, she, uh, did you say some sweet words then? <laughs> It ain't mother that's coming. Well, whoever it is will be an improvement on that old bag. Now, you right. let mother alone. Yeah, well, I wish you'd let me alone. Stay away from here, too. Who's coming? My unmarried sister, Florescent. <laughs> <laughs> unmarried sister? 
You mean to tell me that country gal is coming up here and stay with us? Yes, she is. Yeah, but where is she going to sleep? We ain't got but them two little beds. Well, we got that sofa. That bumpy, hard old sofa? Will fluorescent fit on that? No, but you will. Now, wait a minute, Chair. I ain't going to do that. <laughs> now, look, George. Here's a picture that you sent me with the letter. Let me see the thing. There you is. But I think she took off some weight since this was cooking. Yeah, look at them double chins on that woman, will you? She looked like a stack of used tires standing there. Oh, George, you talk like fluorescent was a hippopotamus. No, ain't no hippopotamus ever been as hippie as she is. <laughs> or potamus either, I tell you that. Well, she's coming anyhow. She's arriving tomorrow. Well, now, wait a minute. I can't afford to have her laying around here eating up my food. Well, there's only one solution to it, George. We got to take care of her till, till we can introduce her to some legible bachelor that ain't married. Legible bachelor, huh? Now, who do I want to get even with about something? Let me see. <laughs> Let me look at that picture again there. Mm-mm, look at that woman. She's getting ugly every year. Well, after all, George, she's 43. According to this picture, she's 10 years ahead of schedule. I know that. <laughs> she ought to go in the beauty shop and stay there for a month. Never leave the joint. She ain't never been inside of one, George. But... You just got to let her live here till you get her married. Hey, wait a minute, you I got an idea. Maybe I could get Andy Brown to marry her. But don't you think Andy's a bum? Yeah, but at her stage of the game, she can't be choosy, honey. <laughs> Say, you know Andy might not be bad for fluorescent. No, on second thought, Andy ain't interested in getting married. He wants to stay single. The last thing he said to me this morning was, I'm just breathing along with a breeze.
fish, come in. Yeah, well, if it ain't my bosom buddy, bachelor Andy Brown. Uh, tell me all your troubles. I know how it is when a man's got worries and he ain't got no wife to comfort him and talk over the troubles with him. Wait a minute. I ain't got no worries, Kingfish. And I think the reason I ain't is because I'm single. Now, there's a strange thing that you mentioned that, that you ain't got no wife. As long as you was done brung up the subject, though, uh, you know, less than an hour ago, I was talking about the same thing to Sapphire. You was, huh? Yeah, I was telling her what you said this morning about marrying a gal that spends so much money in the beauty shops. Yeah, and all of them do it. No, no, Brother Andy. There's the very ultra-economical type that never goes in a beauty shop. And you was lucky if you can land one like that. Yeah, but where is they? Ah, now my darling wife has got a charming little sister named Fluorescent. And she's staying with us for the winter. Yeah, uh, your little sister, well, I say little, uh, she's got a little fat here and a little fat there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, she is one gal that makes a perfect wife. I, I, I'd hate to see her get married. You know, I would cry at the altar like a mother. Yeah, well, wipe your tears away, Mama. I ain't gonna take her to no altar. Uh, no, Andrew, I'd like to have a good cry. If I could get two soulmates together. No, no, Kingfish, I ain't in the marrying mood. Well, now, wait a minute, Andrew. It's the rule and regulation of nature that every man has got to have a wife. Because without one, you ain't got the love and companionship. And that's what you need. Listen, if I need love and companionship, I can do better with a dog. <laughs> when a dog sit on your lap and kiss your hands, you know that it's really love he's after and not money to spend in no beauty shop. A dog really treats you good. Oh, she'll treat you like a dog already. Right, <laughs> I, I, I want you to come over and meet Fluorescent tonight. Well, how come you were so anxious for me to meet this gal, Kingfish? Well, Andy, I ain't never told you this before, son, but now is as good a time as any. You see, Andy, I was fond of you. I was always loved you like a brother. And if you was to marry Fluorescent, that would make you my brother-in-law. And, Andy, that is the sweetest relation between two men. Kingfish, I never know that you felt that way about me. Yeah, well, it's high time I told you, brother-in-law. Yes, Andy, I'd be proud and happy to put you on one of the limbs of my family tree. Yeah. Well, I'd like to get out on a limb. Oh, I'll get you out on a limb, all right. Yeah, you know, and another thing, if we was brother-in-laws, why, maybe you wouldn't cheat me out of money no more. Well, that's right. But even if I did cheat you, you'd have the satisfaction of knowing that the money is still in the family. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Brother-in-laws is good, all right. What kind of a gal is this neon tubing? A fluorescent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She is a lovely gal, and uh, I want you to meet her before you marry her. Uh, you know, <laughs> if uh, I'd have met her before I married my wife, I would have never married Sapphire. You mean you'd have married Fluorescent? No, I just wouldn't have married Sapphire. <laughs> well, tell me this. What does she look like? Has you got a picture of her that I can see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got one here, but I won't warn you, and it, uh, this ain't a very good one. Uh, the picture was took under very bad conditions. It was, huh? Yeah, it was film in the camera at the time. That is old film, I mean, like that. Uh... Well, let me see the picture. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This is a group picture, ain't it? <laughs> no, no, that group is all her. That's all her. <laughs> no, no, Kingfish. I think she's too old for me, and she ain't good-looking, neither. Yeah, but looks don't mean nothing, brother-in-law, Andy. After all, beauty's only skin deep. Yeah, well, she got a lot of skin on her there. <laughs> she loaded with skin. Oh, yeah, she sure is a big woman. Yeah, well, now, that's the beauty part of it, her being big. Most men marry skinny little gals, 
work their heads off, making money to fatten them up so they'll look like a wife. But you is getting a gal that's already been pre-fattened. You see what I mean? Yeah, well, uh, I'd like to meet her. What time could I come to see her? Well, we're having supper around 7 o'clock. Yeah, how about me getting there at 6.30? No, no, uh, make it around 8.30. You see, Flo uh, Russell just come from the country, and she ain't used to strangers yet. You can come to supper some other night after she done learned to eat with a knife and fork. I don't go out walking. I ain't for no talking. My baby's done left me. Just a sitting and a rocking. Now, if I had been scheming instead of just dreaming, she'd never have left me. Just a sitting and a rocking. Now, sitting all day without holding my baby, I'm such a lonely papa. If she don't hurry and come back, I'm a cinch to blow my papa. Now, if I don't find her, I hope you remind her that I'm staying where she left me. Just a sitting and a rocking all day. Never go out walking. You never hear me talking. And I guess I'll never be the same, baby, till you return. Please act right and give me a call. And some night we will have a ball. Walked up with him. <laughs> After that, you used to always go out and round 
them up quietly. Say, uh, by the way, Sapphire, if Andy asks Florence's age, we can't tell him that she's 43 because uh, Andy's 43 herself. Oh, that's right. Well, we'll have to knock off 10 years and say she's only 33. Yeah, that's a good... Uh, uh-oh, there's Andy now. Put on your shoes, Florence. Uh-oh, he's there. Oh, Sapphire, how do I look? George, how do I look? It's too late now. I'm going to let him in. <laughs> well, well, well. Good evening, brother-in-law. Good evening, Andy. Hello, folks. Uh, Andy, allow me the privilege to introduce to you my very charming and single sister-in-law by marriage, the very desirable Florescent. Uh, well, I got to be going. Wait folks. a minute. Come back here. Come back here. No, no, let go of my necktie, Kingfish. Let go. You're oh, choking me. Don't go so yeah. soon, Andy. And Florescent, say hello to Mr. Brown. Can I take off my shoes now? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Andy, sit down. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, take off your shoes, too, Andy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you two ought to find a lot in common on account of there's only 10 years difference in your ages. Yeah, I figured she was about 53. <laughs> oh, Andy, you missed it by 20 years. Well, I didn't want to say 73. And <laughs> hey, what you got in the package? I brung you a present. A bag of potato chips. Potato chips? For me? There's for us. Oh, Jimmy, I just love these potato chips. Wait a minute, for us, you've got to take them out of the bag first, Dad. Don't do that. Well, come on, George. Let's go to the movies and leave the young folks alone. Yeah, well, we'll be back in a couple of hours. You all enjoy yourself, and if I know Andy, ha, 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 he'll speak right up for himself. Yeah, well, see you later. Goodbye. Have a good time, you little lovebirds. Come on, George. Oh, George, I certainly hope that this thing works out. You think it will? Well, I'll soon find out. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's stay right here, and I'll peek through the keyhole. What do you see, George? They are sitting in two chairs. Wait a minute. What is it? Andy is getting up. He's walking over to the sofa. Well, where's Florissa? She's sitting in the chair near him. Uh-oh. Andy is dimming the light by the sofa. Oh, that's great. It's working. Hot dog. Now he's sitting on the sofa. Really? How about fluorescent? Well, she ain't moved yet. <laughs> Uh-oh. What's happened? Andy laid down to take a nap. <laughs>
What you want to see me about, Andy? Well, Amos, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. If you was me, would you marry a gal if you didn't love her? Well, not unless I was out of my head, I wouldn't. Yeah, well, the kingfisher's sister-in-law, fluorescent, is a gal. Uh-huh. I think she's too old for me, though. It finally come out that she was 73. Oh, Andy, I don't think a man ought to marry a gal unless there's true love there. Yeah, I think you're right. That's all, Andy. A real marriage is when you can have the thrill of picking up the one you love in your arms and holding them close to you. Yeah, well, that holding close thing ain't bad, but somebody's got to help me when it comes to picking fluorescent up. <laughs> well, tell me this, Andy. Uh, when you see her the first time, did you have a feeling of love? Did you kind of get uh, tight in the chest? No, I got upset in the stomach. <laughs> well, Andy, just remember one thing. After you marry the gal, you got to live in the same house with her for the rest of your life. Yeah, you're right. Amos, you talked me out of it. Yeah, well, uh, come in, Kingfish. I just leave it. Yeah. Well, how is you there, Amos? Uh, how is my future brother-in-law, Andy? That's what I want to talk to you about. Yeah, well, I'll see you all later. So long, fellas. Thank you, brother Amos. So long, Amos. Uh, brother-in-law, dear... Hold it, hold it. <laughs> I might as well nip you in the butt right now and tell you that I ain't going to marry a fluorescent. But, Brother Ander, you mean that you ain't going to marry a fluorescent, that sweet little delicate flower? What you talking about, flower? She went to seed 20 years ago. <laughs> Kingfish, I just don't love her. Brother Ander, that's the old-fashioned idea. The new way is to marry them first and then learn to love them. Yeah, well, I like the old-fashioned way of loving them first and then learning to forget them. Now, wait a minute. You can't do that to me. Now, like I told you 20 times before, she's too old for me. Well, now, wait just a minute here. I'll sue you for breach of promise. I'll go see my lawyer right now. You'll sue me for breach of promise. Yeah, you promised to be my brother-in-law. Oh, I'll get you. I'll get you. <laughs> Hello there, Gabby. Oh, oh, Kingfish, come on in, come on in. Yeah, well, Gabby, how's the law business? You look kind of sad about something. What's the matter? I just had a horrible experience, a horrible experience. I just lost a client. Oh, that's too bad. How'd it happen? I fell off the ambulance. <laughs> well, now, listen, Gabby, I come to see you about my assistant-in-law, Florentin. Is you seen her since she's been in town? You mean that basswood guy that was sitting on your front steps at Sapphire? Yeah, that's her. She just come up from the country. Well, tell me something, Kingfish. Is she web-footed, or was that mud between her toes? <laughs> Uh, you, you must have seen her when she had my shoes on. How'd she get to New York? Hitchhike or whoa? No, she came by Greyhound. Greyhound? <laughs> that dog turned the cattle lower, didn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, Andy Brown promised to marry this gal and then back down. Say that she's too old and ugly and all that stuff. Now, here's what I want to ask you. Can I force the marriage by suing him for breach of promise? Breach of promise, breach of promise. I represent a beautiful girl in court once when she was suing for breach of promise. I got up and I pleaded my case right to the judge. I pleaded right to him. I made a wonderful plea. Then the lawyer for the defendant got up and he made his plea. The judge didn't know what to do. He said to this beautiful girl, come with me into my private chambers. She went in there with the judge. They was locked up for 20 solid minutes. And then the door opened and the judge spoke. What did he say? <laughs> lovely, lovely. <laughs> Uh, Gabby, I ain't much of a man for in-laws. My wife's mother will drive me crazy. And this gal is almost as bad as the, 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 the stand at my house. Now, how can I get Annie to marry her so I can get out of our house? Oh, when I saw her, she looked like a scarecrow. Why don't you send her to the beauty shop and get her fixed up? They can do wonders over there, just wonders. Say, that's a good idea. 
I'll put my watch in pawn, I'll put everything else in pawn, and I'll get them to fix her up so she'll be a real glamour gal. Oh, that beauty shop will do a job on all right. They'll give her false eyelashes, they'll give her false eyebrows, they'll put rats in her hair, they'll give her false fingernails, and a do cool job on her face. Make her real good looking, just like other women. Sure enough. Yes, indeed. And after she gets them beauty shop good looks, she'll understand one thing. What's that? <laughs> Why, so many women carry umbrellas when it rains. <laughs> Let's go in the house, and uh, you can pop the question to fluorescent right here now. Yeah, I can't wait. You know, I've seen her two or three times on the street lately, and she looks like a million dollars. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful what they can do for them in the beauty saloon, all right. Uh, yeah, and uh, since she got herself fixed up, you know, she really done become a hip gal. She's popular, too. Oh, yeah, I can hardly wait to pre-pose marriage. Uh, uh, where are we? Uh, hello there, fluorescent. How is you? Oh, hello, brother George. What's cooking? Hello, Mr. Brown. How's Dreamboat today? Mm-mm. Look at you. You really beautiful now. Well, fluorescent darling. Ha, ha, ha. I got something to say to you. Pull yourself together, lover boy. What's on your mind? Well, I'd like to talk to you about marriage. Sorry, honey, Ty, but one of the hip cats over at the Savoy Ballroom just talked to me about the same thing, and we are all set. Sure enough, you mean that, uh, that, that, that you was going to get married? Oh, congratulations. Wait a minute here. What's the matter with me for a husband? I'm sorry. You're too old for me. So long, Pop. <laughs> well, now, there's a fine thing. Well, Andy, it's too bad that you didn't take off my hands. But I done a pretty smart job in getting her fixed up and finding a husband for her. Oh, boy, I is rid of her. And me and Sapphire are going to have some peace around here now. Oh, George, did Florescent tell you the good news? Oh, yeah, I just heard it, honey, and I'm plenty happy. Oh, I was so excited about it that I phoned long distance to Mother. And I told her how either you got Florescent married. <laughs> What'd you say? Mother's arriving here tomorrow to live with us so you can do the same thing for her. Oh, <laughs> Good night, program was a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education.
This is Wendell Niles speaking. Here's something to remember about the new Frigidaire refrigerators. They're made to fit. Made to fit your kitchen. Made to fit your needs. Because, you see, Frigidaire offers you a wide variety of refrigerator types and sizes. There's a size for small apartment kitchens, a size for big farm families, and many different sizes in between. These wonderful new Frigidaire refrigerators give you more room, up to half again as much space for storing foods, yet take up no more space in the kitchen. There's lots of shelf room, special places to keep things like tall bottles, fruits and vegetables, meats, eggs, and other small articles. Generous room in all models for safe storage of frozen foods. And the fifth, the most important requirement of all, your need for utmost dependability. Every one of these new Frigidaire refrigerators is powered by the famous Frigidaire meter miser, the simplest coal-making mechanism ever built. Remember how the new Frigidaire refrigerators are made to fit into your home, into your way of living. And always remember, ask to see the name Frigidaire when you ask to see a new refrigerator. Kraft presents... The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> Each week at this time, from Hollywood, California, Kraft presents Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. from the great Gildersleeve in just a moment. But first, remember that these days your family needs plenty of good nourishing food. And of course, it's mostly the flavor of what you serve that tempts them to eat all they need. Well, flavor is something that wholesome parquet margarine certainly has. Delicate, appetizing flavor never possible in old-time margarine. You see, parquet margarine is the modern margarine made by Kraft. And it's outstanding because it tastes so deliciously good whether you serve it at the table or use it for baking and pan frying. Yes, if you haven't tried parquet, you just can't know how wonderfully good modern margarine can be. Another thing, parquet margarine is good for you. It's a wholesome, nourishing energy food. And every pound contains 9,000 units of important vitamin A. Best of all, parquet margarine is economical, and that's important these days when we're all saving every bit we can to buy defense stamps and bonds. Why not try a pound or two of delicious parquet margarine tomorrow? Yes, just ask your dealer for parquet. P-A-R-K-A-Y. It's made by Kraft. And now let's visit our friend, the great Gildersleeve, who is about to visit a local furniture store in search of a new bed as a surprise gift for his niece, Marjorie. Now, I like that pink canopy bed in the window, Leroy. How about buying that one for Marjorie? Oh, no. Who'd help her put the top down on nice nights? Yes. Leroy, that isn't a convertible bed. Uh, let's go in. I know the owner of this store. If it ain't my old friend, Chuck Morton P. Gildersleeve. Hello, Stanford. Yes, Slepperman. My, my, you're a sight for good eyes. Yes. Why, you're the very motion picture of hell. Yes. In fact, a double feature. Yes. 
And don't tell me this is little Theodore. I won't. This is little Leroy. My, my, how you jumped out. Why, I remember when I used to bounce you on my knees, sonny boy. Yes, in about one more year, he'll be able to return the favor, Slepperman. <laughs> Guilty, my pal. You took the words right out of my bridge work. Yes. <laughs> well, let's not stand around on our ceremonies. Will you have a chair? Or were you thinking of buying a Devonport? Well, we... We were interested in beds. Something in a little uh, slumber number. <laughs> oh, hachipati. Just follow me, please. Uh, okay. Sam, what's the name of this chair that the man is sleeping in? Uh, that's a Morris chair. Oh, hello, Morris. <laughs> hello, la, la, la. Slepperman's kid brother. He's 40 years old and still a problem child. Gee, what kind of a clock is this, Unc? Uh, that's a grandfather's clock, Leroy. And don't open it. There are no grandfathers inside. <laughs> well, here we are. I'm telling you confidentially, Trucky, when it comes to sleeping furniture, this store is wide awake. Uh, yes, yes, I know. <laughs> Leroy, quit jumping up and down on that bed. Ah, leave him to be guilty. Let the boy have fun. All right, so he sp- suppose he does break a couple of springs. So I'll put it on your bill. Yeah. <laughs> Young man, come down from there. Oh, cancel, Mort. I was only making a test hop. Yes. <laughs> what a kitty, huh? He's a regular Mickey Looney. Mickey Looney. <laughs> Guilty? What kind of a bed would you like to buy if I'm not taking too much priority? Yes. It's for Marjorie, you know, Leroy's sister. She's away at a Red Cross training school, and Leroy and I thought we'd surprise her by fixing up her bedroom. What an uncle. An angel without wings. Yeah, I was grounded. (laughs) I wish I had an uncle like you got, Leroy. Uh, Leroy, Mr. Slepperman is talking. Leroy, where are you? Oh, young man, come out of that grandfather's clock. Okay. See, that makes a keen place for hiding. Go ahead, Leroy. Keep it up. I know another keen place for hiding. (laughs) Don't be too harsh on the boy, Trocky. Remember, you were a pickaninny once yourself. Yes. Look, Sam, do you want me to make up my mind about that bed now, or would you rather have me sleep on it? Okay. How about this creation in solid mahogany with a waterfall design? It's very excruciating. Yeah. I don't know. It looks a little too stodgy. Stodgy is the latest trend. Gee, why don't you buy this dandy double-decked bunk bed for Marjorie, Uncle? No, my boy. What we want is something dainty and feminine, like, uh, say, that pink canopy model in the window. Ah, now you're talking with gas. Well, what's cooking with the bed? (laughs) Come on, come on. We can step into the window and give it a closer inspection. Yeah, come on, Leroy. Get away from that folding bed before it traps you. Coming, Uncle Moore. Right up here, Guilty. Careful passing that statue. Inhale. Thank you. Yeah. And look at that bed. Beautiful, ain't it? Uh, I'm telling you, this is a bed of roses. It is? Yes. And it's her own exclusive design. Yeah, whose? My daughter, Roses. Yeah. <laughs> well, she certainly did a splendid job. Is it as comfortable as it looks? And just try it. Lay right down. Go ahead. Take a sample snooze. Yeah, I will, Sam. Ah, uh, yes. Feels very soft. <laughs> you see, you float around like you're 99% pure. <laughs> and why not? It's got a deep sleep mattress and it's got a double box springs. And I know something else it's got, Unc. Yeah, what's that, Leroy? It's got half the people in town staring in the window at you, too. What? Oh, yeah, come on, let's get out of here. Silly thing for me to do. Say, Sam, how much is that bed? Well, just the way it stands with that beautiful speed match... A spread, I'm asking, uh, and it cost me, uh, but I'll let you have it for 
Wrong price, $120. $120, eh? Well, I wasn't figuring on spending quite that much, but... Hmm. See, uh, how much will you give me in trade for Marjorie's present bed? Well, it's pretty old. How do you know? You haven't seen it. Well, I have a very vivid imagination. Yeah. He's right. Well, it must be hmm, 50 years old. 50? Why, Leroy, it's at least 150. A very graceful four-poster, Slepperman. Really an antique. I'm sorry, but what you people call antiques is by me strictly secondhand. But this is really better than secondhand. Yeah, it must be sixth or seventh hand. Yep. Leroy, you get back in the grandfather's clock. Now, Sam, I'll let you in on a little secret. According to an unconfirmed rumor, that bed was slept in by George Washington. Recently? Huh? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do, Gildy. Suppose you make me a price for that old bed. Uh, Fine. Now, let me see. Uh, How about $20? $20? You're a hard man, Gildingsleeve. Hard? Why, that's pretty soft for you. Well, it's a deal. Shake. And now that it's set... I don't mind saying that I would have gone as high as $25. Oh, you would, eh? Well, I don't mind confessing, Sammy, old kid, that I would have taken as low as $10. (laughs) Uh, Hello? No, Marjorie's out of town. I'll tell her you called. Who is this? Uh, John? Uh, Which John? Oh, you must be a new John, yes. Goodbye, John Lewis. Oh, Bertie. Come as quick as I can. Yes, Mr. Gilsey. Which is today's stack of messages for Marjorie? The little one, the big, thick powder from yesterday. I never saw anything like it. That phone is busier than a burglar in a blackout. Everybody wants Marjorie. Yes, and it's worse when I'm here all alone. Hardly no time to do the cleaning or the cooking. I'm busy with my social secretary. Yeah. There's only one thing I hope. What's that, Bertie? That Miss Marjorie be able to read all my writing on them messages. Why? Because I can't. Yes. <laughs> Nevertheless, you take care of the rest of them, Bertie. I want to see if those furniture men have the new bed set up yet. Ah, oh, hello, Leroy. Hello, Uncle yeah, Hello, men. I see you've removed the old bed and have the new one all put together already. Oh, yeah. Uh, Morris is testing it now. How is it, Morris? See? It's okay. Uh, come on, Morris. Oh, look at him in the arms of Orpheus. It, you mean Morpheus. Orpheus is the music god. If that's music, well... Morris but... Schlepperman, get up. I know what'll wake him. Hey, Morris, time to go to bed. Uh, it is. I'm coming, Frank. Wait for me. That Morris should hibernate for the winter. Say, doesn't that bed look grand? Oh, Bertie, come on in here. Call me, Mr. Gill, please. Well, ain't that the cutest looking little bed? Yeah. I can hardly wait to see Miss Marge climb in and hit the hay. This bed costs $120, Bertie, and that ain't hay. <laughs> oh, you better see who's at the door, Bertie. Yes, if it ain't one thing, it's the same thing. <laughs> Throw that bedspread across, Leroy, so we can get an idea of how it looks made up. Okay. That's it, thanks. Why, it's as pretty as a new $20 bill. It's six $20 bills. There's a Miss Van Scudder to see you, Mr. Gilsley. Uh, Van Scudder? I wonder who that can be. Well, I better go see. Mr. Gildersleeve? Uh, yeah? I'm Patricia Van Scudder, the interior decorator. I'm to redo Marjorie's bedroom. Uh, already? Why, Leroy and I just finished a redo job five minutes ago. Oh, there must be some mistake. I received a letter from Marjorie yesterday asking me to decorate her room. Oh, I see. Well, Marjorie didn't know about our little effort. It was to be a surprise. <laughs> well, if it's anything like the usual man's idea of a girl's room, it's probably more of a shock than a surprise. 
Um, hadn't we better look at the room in question now? Oh, yes, of course. Excuse me. Uh, this way, Miss Van Scudder. Uh, right in here. Uh, so this is my nephew, Leroy. Leroy, this is Miss Van Scudder. Hello. How do you do? Well, I'm genuinely surprised. Uh, Why, this is a charming, charming room. Oh, you like it? Yes. Why, I can hardly believe you two did this. It's really quite lovely. Well, all we did was to buy it. Be quiet, Leroy. Let's hear Miss Van Scudder. Really, I'd leave it just as it is, except for one thing. And what's that? The bed. (laughs) But that's the only thing... Uh, Leroy, please. (laughs) What did you say, Miss Van Scudder? The bed. Uh, Wrong? Oh, but definitely. The color clashes with everything else. (laughs) And the style. Oh, that... Style. Yeah, some style, isn't it? Oh, yes, quite horrible. Now, see here, Miss Van Scooter. Why, why, to put it in this room is almost as bad as mixing Empire with Rococo. Uh, Hey, Uncle, what's Empire and Rococo? Shh, I think they're a couple of racetracks. (laughs) I see. Uh, Then you don't think that Marjorie would like the bed, eh? I know she wouldn't be happy in this overgrown bassinet. Who's a... Oh, she wouldn't, eh? No. However, I'd be happy to go out and find you the proper bed for this room. You would? Well, maybe that would solve our little problem. Well, I'll be glad to. Meanwhile, get rid of this pink atrocity, won't you? You're, uh, you're still sure it won't do, eh? Oh, dear, no. Oh. Why, I'd just as soon put Heppelwhite next to Chippendale. Oh, we couldn't do that, could we? Why not, Uncle? They don't speak. Oh. <laughs> well, well, I must be going now. Don't trouble to show me to the door. Goodbye. Yeah, Goodbye. Oh, our pretty pink bed, Leroy. Now I'll have to send it back. Too bad, Uncle Mort. Yes. Strange how many things there are in this world you could enjoy. Only the experts didn't tell you they're no good. Hey, Morris, wake up and help me. Here comes your brother. You who? Oh, yeah. Yeah, hello, Sam. At least you could open your eyes, Morris. It's bad enough to have a pill for our brother, but I got to have one that's a sleeping pill. <laughs> What's this bed you're selling up, Frank? It's the one we brought back from Miss Gildersleeve's house yesterday. Oh, yes, be very careful with it. There's a rumor around that Washington slept in it. However, as of today, the rumor hasn't been verified. Excuse me, sir, but I was looking for something in a bed. Uh, pillows, blankets, or sheets? No, no, no. You don't understand. I want a bed for a young lady's room. Something colonial, shall we say? Sure. Let's say colonial. Colonial. <laughs> now, if you'll just follow me, Junior Miss. Oh, oh, but one moment, please. What about this one that the men are putting together? Oh, that? <laughs> oh, don't give it a second thought. It's too old. It is? How old? Uh, 150, 200. Who knows? Now... If you want to see some up-to-date, fresh-from-the-factory colonial beds, I'm the man who's got them. Oh, no, never mind. This one is just the thing. Imagine a four-poster in such excellent condition. And a Duncan Fife at that. Uh, please, don't rush me. Remember, this is a genuine age in the wood Drunken Fife. <laughs> now, uh, let me see. Hmm, $30. Well, I'm sure that I can use it at that price. I know just the spot where that bed will be right at home. Suppose you send it to my shop on approval. I'm Patricia Van Scudder, dealer in period furniture. I'm pleased to meet you. I'm Samuel Slapperman, dealer in furniture, period. (laughs) 
wire from Miss Marsh. Uh, are you sure? It must be. It came collect. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll soon see. Oh, Leroy. Uh, telegram for Marjorie. Yeah? What did she say, huh? Uh, regarding redecoration, before you dispose of old bed, be sure to unscrew the left front knob and fish out my string of pearls. What does she mean, Leroy? Oh, I remember. She sometimes uses the hollow bedpost as a kind of secret jewel box. Where are you going, Uncle Mort? In the Marjorie's room to unscrew the old great Caesar's ghost. That was the bed we traded in at Schlepperman's. those pearls out of the bed in Schlepperman's is a job that requires tact and delicacy. You're right, Uncle Mort. You wait here and I'll go in by myself. Yeah, wait a minute, young man. I'm going to do this job myself. If you care to, you can come along and uh, whistle if you see anybody coming. Okay. Any particular tune you want me to whistle? Well, no. I, I can just, uh, well... Uh, hello, Stranza. Hello, Leroy. Coming back for another bed? Hello, Slepperman. Uh, no, Leroy and I are just out window shopping. Oh, of course. What kind do you want? Plate glass, stained glass, or, or plate glass? Yeah. <laughs> you don't understand. Leroy and I just want to look around. You don't mind our browsing, I hope? Oh, no. I do a lot of that myself. You should see me browsing over a herring. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, I suppose I'll show you around. Oh, no, no, no. Don't trouble yourself. Ah, trouble, he says. Why, my time is your time. What's your time? 11.30. I, I mean, we can look around by ourselves. Oh, uh, let me show you. Yeah. Say, you might miss some of the little gems that are hidden around this store. Uh, quiet, Leroy. I wasn't going to say anything, Uncle. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Uh, but really, Sam, don't bother to come along. Uh, we'll feel uh, freer to... Uh... To help ourselves. Yes, that's it. We may dig out something we consider valuable if we're left alone. Yeah, at least we hope so. Yeah. All right. And if you find what you want, SOS me PDQ. And I'll be there in a flash for the cash. Yes. Flash for the cash. Come on, Leroy. Yeah. Are we out of sight? Yeah. Can you see it, Unc? Well, here's a four-poster. It... <laughs> but the knobs and the posts are solid. Here are some more, Unc. Yeah, good. I'll be as quiet as a little... Oh, quiet. Oh, oh, that's me. <laughs> Say, how about this one? No, Leroy, leave it alone. This isn't Marjorie's bed. It's the wrong color, and it hasn't any posts. And besides, Morris is sleeping in it. There's Mr. Schlepperman coming this way. Good. Maybe I can pump him about it, huh? Oh, my Oh, there you are. Yes, here we are. By the way, Sam, you remember that old bed of Marjorie's you took in trade? Sure. What about it? Well, I was just wondering what had become of it. Not that I was looking for it. Oh, no. Why, that bed sold like a hot cake. What? You sold it? What? You want it back? You... Well, sort of. I I got to thinking about it, Sam. You know, it was really Marjorie's. Yeah, and she put a lot of value in that bed. Uh, I didn't realize it myself until just recently. In fact, I never should have traded it into you. Well, if that's the case, maybe I can get it back for you. You can? How? The lady who bought it took it away on approval. Huh? Possibly if I go to her before she makes up her mind and somehow or the other raise the price, she might turn the bed down. Oh, that's great. How... I'll see that you don't lose on the deal, Sam. I know you can put it across. You do? I wish I did. Yeah. Do you want me to come along and help you? No, I think you might complicate the situation. You know, Trucky, in negotiations for antiques, it needs the cool, experienced head of an old hand with a near to the ground to put the best foot forward. Mr. 
Schlepperman, come here. What can I do for you? Ah, this is just a post driver's holiday, whatever it is, of course. Now that I'm here, I might as well inquire if you want to keep that bed you took on approval. Well, the young lady I'm buying it for is still out of town. Well, I've got a buyer who wants that bed right now. In fact, he says he'll pay up to mm, $40 for it. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, I hate to be pressing you, but could you give me a quick yes or no? Wait, I think I can get an answer for you right away. Excuse me, won't you? But certainly not. Marjorie, this is Patricia Van Scudder, Mr. Gildersleeve, and I have the nicest news for you. Yes? I found just the bed for Marjorie's room. Well, isn't that nice? Yes. Wait till you see it. You'll be speechless. Well, I bet I'll find something to say. <laughs> now, the only thing is this. How much are you willing to pay? Uh, pay? Oh, anywhere up to 50, 60, even 75, if you think it's worth it. Oh, thank you. That's all I wanted to know. Goodbye. Well, Mr. Slepperman, I think we can do business. My client will pay more than that $40 offer you had. Is that a fact? Mm-hmm. Pardon me, uh, could you be so kindly as to let me use your telephone? Oh, surely. Go right ahead. It's in my office there. Thank you. I'll be back instantaneously. <laughs> Hello, Trucky. This is Slepperman. I've located that bed of Marjorie. Oh, uh, you have? Good. But there has developed complications. Oh, what's the trouble? Uh, those people who have it now are willing to pay a good stiff price, maybe fifty, sixty dollars. Well, I'll give you more than they will, the crooks. Whatever that bid is, I'll pay ten dollars more, as high as say uh, one hundred dollars. All right, you're the doctor. Goodbye, Doc. <laughs> well, Miss Vanscuda. I just talked to my client, and he says he'll pay $50 for that bed. Oh, but my people won't let him take it for that. They'll give 60 60 is a nice price. But this fellow so is no cheapskate. He says 70 My clients are just as stubborn as yours. We say 75 I'm sorry, but my man will top their offer 85 Well, Freddy's got us licked. Too bad. They'll be disappointed. Well, you can send your truck over to pick up the bed whenever you want to. Oh, I don't have to do that. Hey, Frank! Yes, Mr. Make up, Mars, and come in here. George Washington's bed rides again. <laughs> Be careful, boys. Put it down easy. There you are, Mr. Gildingsleeve. Safely and soundly. Yes, well, thank you very much, Lee Sam. <laughs> now, if you and your men will wait outside for just a moment. Yeah, precisely. Come on, boys. Ah, uh, at last, Leroy. Gee, which knob is it, Uncle? Yeah, the left front one. Ah, I've got it. Here's something. By George, it's the missing pearls. Boy, what a relief. Say, now that you have the jewels, what are you going to do with the bed? Maybe Mr. Schlepperman will buy it back. Oh, that's silly, Leroy. He, he just went to an awful lot of trouble persuading somebody to let me have it. Say, I've got to thank him about that. Uh, oh, Sam, if, I want you to know that I appreciate all the trouble you've gone through to get this bed back for me. Uh, thanks very much. Oh, yeah, don't mention it. It was a mere trifle, on a big scale, of course. Yes. I was really up against a determined woman. For a little while, it looked like I'd have to kidnap it. Uh, kidnap it? Is that so? Well, I wonder if she still wants the bed. Oh, yes. Why, if I walked into her place right now with that bed, she'd cover me with kisses. 
Heavens forbid. Well, in that case, why not let her have it? Excuse me, I don't think I heard you right. Did you say let her have it? Yes, I didn't realize she wanted it so badly. I don't want to be so selfish about all this. Well, I'll be a dog in the manger. Yes. After all I've been through, too. Guilty? If you sell it again, what will Marjorie say when she finds out? Oh, don't worry. That's all fixed. Someone has found a bed that'll make her forget all about this one. Well, that's fine. I'll take it back to the other party. Yeah? Oh, Frank! Oh, Morris! Yes, boss? What is it? Tell me what I want. Go get the bed and put it on the truck again. But we're taking it apart and put it together four times already. I'm getting tired. <laughs> Say, what do you want me to do? Install zippers? Go, go, go. I'm sorry to give you all this trouble, Slepperman. Ah, trouble. This is a dandy bed. I've done more business with this one single article this week than I have with all the rest of my stock put together. <laughs> I've got a surprise for you. Who is it? Oh, Mr. Supplement. What is it? Do you remember that lovely George Washington flute bed? Well, I had to talk myself blue in the face, but I got it back for you. You did? Oh, you little dear, I could kiss you. Oh, please, please. I'm a married man. <laughs> and do you want the bed? Oh, yes. Then everything is peaches down in Florida. You mean in Georgia? Ever been to Florida? Oh, Frank. Oh, Morris. In again. Oh, there it is. Won't Marjorie Forrester be pleased when she gets this bed? Why, yes, of course. Uh, what? Are you giving this bed to Marjorie Forrester? Oh, no. Oh, that's good. I'm not giving it to her. Her uncle, Mr. Gildersleeve, is. You don't mean by any chance Trotmorton P. Gildingsleeve? <laughs> a large, deep man with a thick voice. Why, yes. Are you a friend of his? Speaking strictly from the past, yes. <laughs> Well, the next time I see him, I'll tell him I met you. I don't think that'll be necessary. <laughs> He'll know it. Well, goodbye, Miss Van Scooter. And if you don't see, if I don't see you again, don't take any more wooden beds. It's been a lovely day, hasn't it, Leroy? Yeah, makes a man glad that he's alive. Yeah. Anything happen while we were out, Bertie? Nothing, only that Van Scudder lady's in Miss Marge's bedroom with some furniture. Huh? Hmm. Wouldn't let me get anywhere near. Claims it to be a surprise for you. Oh, yes, the new bed. Well, I'm anxious to see it, Bertie. She says it's going to bowl me over. Dear, maybe it's all ready now. Come on, Uncle. All right, come along, Bertie. Yes, sir. Making so much fuss over that bed, you think George Washington slept in it. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, just a second. It's almost ready. There. Oh, Mr. Gildersleeve. Uh, yes? I want you to see the room properly. Ready? Uh, this better be good. Yes, I'm ready. Close your eyes. Yes. Now, I'll count three, and then you can open them. One, two, three. Well, it's very... <laughs> I don't get it, lady. Don't get what? This room looks just like it did before. I know, but the bed. That's 
the one I had so much trouble buying for you. But that's... Oh, my. Yes, that's the same bed that was there in the first place. Oh, no. I picked this bed up at a tremendous bargain, $150. Oh, great jumping keeps, $150. But, but it's absolutely authentic. George Washington slept in it. Oh! 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 about Miss Marge's valuable pearls tastes nothing but imitation pearls. What? Oh, that makes it all the worse. I'm getting dizzy. Leroy, bring me a chair. Come on, here. Sit down on the bed, Uncle. Yeah. Yeah, let me help you over. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, what's this big lump under the bedspread? <gasps> Morris, you get out of here. Huh? All right, all right. Uh, Gildersleeve will be with us again in just a moment. But right now, I think you men especially will agree that the evening meal is a mighty important event. Yes, after coming home in the cold from a hard day's work, plenty of steaming hot food on the table is certainly a welcome sight. Well, men, you need good food. It replaces the strength and energy you've used up during the day. That's why you should be sure there's plenty of energy food on the table. Energy food like parquet margarine, made by Kraft. You see, parquet margarine is one of the best sources of food energy you can serve, made from American farm products. And parquet is also a reliable food source of vitamin A the year round. Yes, every pound contains 9,000 units of this important vitamin. And parquet margarine is so downright good tasting, it's bound to be a hit with all the family. So men, why not ask your wives to try delicious parquet margarine? They'll find it's grand for table use. A real flavor shortening for baking, too, and just about perfect for pan frying. Yes, ask them to order Parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y. It's the margarine made by Kraft that tastes so good, yet costs so little. Ladies and gentlemen, our president will soon reach his 60th birthday. We can all help him celebrate. We can show him our deep regard and affection by contributing to a cause that's very close to his heart, your local Fight Infantile Paralysis campaign. Let's all say happy birthday, Mr. Roosevelt, by aiding the fight against this enemy of our children. Good night. by William Randolph. This is Jim Bannon speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company and inviting you to be with us again next week at the same time for the further adventures of The Great Gildersleeve. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast is a unique experience. You will be able to listen to several old-time radio shows in one episode. From Our Miss Brooks to Gunsmoke, from comedy to drama and even science fiction, it's all here. New free episode every Friday, and you can even subscribe for only 99 cents a month to double your listening pleasure. So make sure you click follow us and find us on Facebook. So relax and enjoy the shows.
evil lurks in the hearts of men. The shadow knows. <laughs> local blue coal dealer presents The Shadow. These half-hour dramatizations are designed to forcibly demonstrate to old and young alike that crime does not pay. Before this afternoon's adventure with The Shadow begins, here's advice every homeowner will profit by following. When you order your next supply of fuel, ask for blue coal. Then you'll enjoy steady, dependable heating comfort and satisfaction such as you've never known before. Countless thousands of American families have found from experience what a tremendous difference blue coal makes. It burns down to a fine ash, leaving no wasted, unburned coal. And it gives steadier, healthier heat with less furnace attention. So if you want the solid fuel for solid comfort, insist on blue coal by name. Call your dealer for your supply tomorrow. The shadow, mysterious character who aids those in distress and helps the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the unseen voice belongs. The only one who knows the true identity of that master of other people's minds, the Shadow. Today's story, Valley of the Living Dead. This desert scenery is simply magnificent, Lamont. Why, this alone was worth the trip. Yes. And I think that's the mountain range over there that I've been looking for. Sort of saw teeth edge to it. Looking for a mountain range? The whole thing seems silly to me. Long trip just because you heard of a rumor that there's a valley someplace behind a sawtooth mountain where people act peculiarly. <laughs> What's behind this rumor? That's just what I'm going to find out, Margot. Yes? Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I want some gas. Huh? And I also want to know the best road up that mountain over there. Oh, there ain't no road over that mountain you can drive on, mister. No road? Well, what's the matter with that one right ahead there? That's no good. Dangerous. And you see, uh, ain't many folks besides me has been in that valley. And, brother, I'm going to live there someday. Well, if you go, you can go alone, Timothy Hicks. I'll have plenty of time to rot when I'm dead and in my grave. What's that you said? I said I'd have long enough to rot when I'm in my grave. I don't pay no attention to missus. She don't know nothing. Why, on the other side of that there range, they got the slickest place you ever seen. Put it in a round valley. There's only one thing, though. I've got to be busted to live there. You can't have any money? Yep, busted. Why, the folks in there get the houses given to them and food, everything. You mean a sort of a state poor farm? Nope, nothing like that. It's private. Owned by Mr. Maxim. Kindest man that ever was. Yes, indeed. Well, there you are, mister. All fixed up. Uh, about how many people live in that valley? Well, well, I wouldn't know exactly. There's maybe eight, nine hundred. I ain't been in since they prospected for gold. <laughs> Boy, they sure hit a vein. Well, then they must have plenty of money in there. Nope, they ain't. See, while Mr. Maxim was in the east, those folks got some capital in from the outside to work the mine. Yep, but uh, but then they uh, he came back. Maxim come back too soon. Gosh, was he mad. 
Put a stop to it as quick as cat. Gold? And he put a stop to it? Yep, yeah. He ain't supposed to have no money in there. Yeah, probably can't tell a nickel from a dime by now. Me, I can't see myself without a bit of change in my hand now and then. Not me. Ain't got nothing in there I want. No radios, theaters, stores, nothing. Well, Lamont Cranston, there's certainly no great wrong here to write. I suggest we give up the whole thing and make this a pleasure trip for a change. Sorry, Margot. Here you are, Hicks. Oh, thanks, mister. Uh, hey, mister, be on the, on the watch for gold that's rolling across the road there. Well, here's where we leave the paved road and start climbing. There's a sign. Danger, drive up this road at your own risk. Oh, yes, I see it. And I assure you it interests me, Margot. In view of what our friend back there just warned us. Uh, there comes the boulder now, Lamont. Bigger than this car. You're right. Oh. Well, strange. You missed us anyhow. Now will you turn back? The road isn't safe. Well, that one might be just coincidence, Margot. It's a fine road. Nothing wrong with it. Good all the way up, far as I can see. There's another boulder. Yes, coming right down this path. Hold fast. Thank goodness that missed us, too. Lamont, there's no coincidence about those boulders rolling down. No, you're right, Margot. Unless I'm mistaken, it's an electric eye. And it starts them as surely as it would open a door. Well, then, for pity's sake, let's get out of here. We'll be smashed to bits. I've had enough of this whole thing. Before the sun sets, Margot, we're going to be in that valley. But we're going in by plane. Unnecessary, Lamont. Going and getting this plane, there can't be anything wrong. Not with this man Maxim on the job. Stays so kind and all that. Margot, never in my life have I felt a more compelling certainty that something was wrong. At any rate, we'll know the moment we're over the jagged teeth of this ridge below. Yeah. Look, Margot. There's the valley. I'll fly lower. Look closely. This is low enough. Yes, a hundred feet. And look. Look at those people closely, Margot. They move along the streets. The lifelessness of them. Well, no traffic to keep them jumping. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong. Children half-heartedly at play. No work being done anywhere. Men sprawled on the grass. Well, what of it, Lamont? Cut off from the outside world. No work to do. No amusements. Nothing for mind or muscle to feed on. Why, Margot, that place is like a stagnant pool covered with green slime. Beautiful to look at but filled with decay. Well, maybe you're right, Lamont. Even the women don't stop to talk to one another. They don't even look up at the sound of the plane. And over there, just beyond the dam, are the gold mines, latest equipment lying idle. And a chance for everybody to make a lot of money. Look, what's that back against the hill? Oh, it's a sort of castle. Now, wait a minute, Margot. That standard flying from the turret there, it has a name on it. I'll try to get closer and make it out. See, uh, Ingram A. Maxim. Ingram Maxim. Why, I know who this fellow is now. You do? In college. I was just a freshman. He was taking postgraduate. A bald, thin little man, always helping some of the fellows. Why, he was rich as Croesus even then. Hang on, Margot. I'm going to set it down on the other side of the dam. Find out what this is all about. 
don't they answer, Lamont? You keep on knocking until they do. Wait. I saw the curtain move from the window up there. Please, Lamont, let's go back to the plane. I, I feel weak. What was that? I don't know. It's horrible. Margot. Good heavens, Margot. Here, you're not fainting. Oh, the lady has fainted. Mr. Maxim, please. I prefer to carry her. I will carry her. No one here dictates to Maxim. There. Now, precede me into the house, if you will, sir. And now, with the little lady well taken care of, we shall dine together. Cranston, we talk over the old days. You see, I remember you. Indeed, I I have the faculty of remembering everybody I ever seen. I couldn't forget you, naturally. Always doing such kind things to help the less fortunate chaps at college. <laughs> that was nothing. Nothing at all. Now, here, of course, I have much larger opportunities. Yes, undoubtedly. Um, something's been puzzling me, Maxim. Those boulders rolling down into the road. I'm curious to know... How you work that? I have my own ways, Mr. Cranston, of protecting this valley of mine from intruders. I want nothing from the outside world to touch my people. Nothing. Uh, well, Smother, I can't move. You're all right, Marco. I... I'm right here. Keep your arms under the blankets, little lady. That's it. But I, I'm not cold. I'm smothering. Too much exertion, my dear, coming down that steep path from the dam. Women's delicate bodies were not built for harsh exertion. You see, they... Serena, what are you doing here? Why did you leave your room in your wheelchair without my help? Is the lady sick, Maxim? Are you sick too, my dear? No. No, nothing wrong with me. Just a little chill. Uh, Miss Lane, my wife. How do you do? Mr. Cranston. How do you do? Did you uh, suffer an injury of some sort, Mrs. Maxim? That you should have to be in a wheelchair? No. Oh, no, I... I've always been strong. But after the birth of my son, I... Yes, I, I think that was when oh, My I... dear, you are exerting yourself too much. You must go to your room. But Maxim's always taken such good care of me. I never have to lift a hand. He carries me, puts me in my bed. He feeds me. He's always so kind. Kind. It is the privilege of all strong people, my dear, to take care of the weaker. Oh. Uh, come, my dear Serena. Off to bed with you. Maxim, the lady heard it too. It's not my imagination. It's the wind, my dear, in a faulty flu. I shall have it fixed tomorrow. But I tell you, it has the sound of my son's voice. <laughs> now, now, that imagination of yours again, my dear. You know that Paul is off at school. Now, say good night to Miss Lane and Mr. Cranston. Good night, Miss Lane. Mr. Cranston. While we're waiting for the second act of The Valley of the Living Dead, here's a word to the wise. Homeowners, when you order fuel, keep in mind that there's just as much of a difference between the quality of various kinds of hard coal as there is in an automobile, radio, or washing machine. This difference lies in the location of the fields from which the coal comes and the care in mining and preparation. That's why it will pay you to insist on blue coal when you order your next supply of fuel. For blue coal is a guaranteed product of the nation's largest hard coal producer, 
the Glen Alden Coal Company. Their mines are located in the richest part of the northern Pennsylvania anthracite fields. Each ton of blue coal as it comes from the mines is screened and re-screened many times for perfect sizing. Then it's washed to remove any existing impurities and laboratory tested by trained inspectors. Only the coal which passes this thorough laboratory test and meets Glen Alden's high quality is shipped to blue coal dealers. That's why you can be sure of perfect heating comfort and satisfaction when you order quality-tested blue coal by name. You'll find that blue coal gives you steadier, more dependable heat. So call your nearest blue coal dealer tomorrow. His name is listed in the where to buy it section of your classified telephone directory under the words blue coal. But, Paul, my son, don't I always come? Oh, this steel cast. Can't we take it off? Not yet, my boy. To remove it too soon would mean that you'd never walk again. I don't care. I don't care. It's now. It's the pain now that I can't stand. I know what is best for you, Paul. But it's getting worse. I can't rest. I can't sleep. Come now. You must. Oh, I only could and never wake up. There. That is better. Patience. Patience. I'll turn the light low. There. Good night, my son. Sleep. Sleep. <laughs> I'm glad he's gone. I'll get this cast off somehow. Even if it does cripple me. I don't care. Let me help you, Paul. Who spoke? Where are you? Don't be frightened. I've come to help you. Nothing can frighten me anymore. But I can't see you. I can sometimes help people better because I'm not seen. Oh, I don't know what you mean, but but can you really help me? I mean, take this cast off. Yes, Paul, right away. Tell me, how long have you had it on? Nearly two years. I was away at school and had an accident. My father came to see me, and, well, well, I don't remember much about that part, but a doctor said that I would have to have this cast put on. A doctor said that? Well, well yes. My father told me he did. Here, yeah. trust me now. I want you to try to stand. But I can't. My father says I can't. I want you to try. All right. I'll try. Oh, I'm standing. Good boy. That's what I wanted to know. You have two strong, healthy legs. They're growing against steel that clamps them like a vice. This cast is coming right off. It's off. Oh, but my legs, they feel numb. Steady, Paul. The pain will soon be gone. You'll be well again. Well again, boy. Oh, yours is not the only bondage to be broken tonight. Ah, Margo, it's good to get out in the air. Now, down these stone steps. Watch out. It's steep. Lamont, tell me that dreadful cry. Was that... Yes, his son, Margo. I was able to relieve his sufferings, oh, though. Oh, thank heaven for that. But down in the village, all those people, what can you do for them? Their suffering has been great enough. I'll make them help themselves. Watch out. This last step. Yeah, that's it. 
There isn't a light anywhere. Everyone in this village is asleep. That's it, Margot. Everyone has been asleep too long. But with luck, I hope to awaken their minds to this... this living death. Not a sound anywhere, Lamont. Except that coyote off in the hills. The villagers sleep, Margot. But they do not rest. Come, I'll show you how their tortured subconscious minds react. This place of living dead, this silence beats on my ears like the drums of eternity. And in the next house and the next, Margot, I must go to them as they sleep in the shadows. Try to free them from this bondage of submission. The bells. I hear them. The good, honest roar of machinery. The white heat of the furnaces. There's a fine strength in me. And I'm to have a raise of a dollar at the end of the week. Uh, no. No, that's past and gone. I become as soft as something that lies rotting in the sun. There is no hope. I am dead. Dead. No. No, my friend, you're alive. And you can be strong again. What? Who spoke? Who said that? God put muscles in a man's body for use, for work. Work? Yes, work. Ah, but we are dead. Not while there is work to be done, and you can do it. No, I've dreamed that dream until I'm nearly mad. Then go to the mines. They wait only for your courage to start them working. No. No, we can't do that. Mr. Maxim has forbidden it. Wake up, man. He has given you what only money can buy. He has taken from you what only God can give. Your freedom. Start working the mines tonight. 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 Lamont, there are lights now in every house. Yes. And over there, lanterns swinging to the quick step of men hurrying to the mines. Give me your hand, Margot. We've no time to lose. We're almost at Maxim's castle. You think in a single night you will have destroyed Maxim's self-created world. As well as that, Margot, everything on which his ego has fattened. Listen, the people are wasting no time. Hurry. Here, I'll help you. Up the steps. Quickly. Quickly, Margot, quickly. This is Maxim's room, Margot. You stay back. I don't know what danger lies behind this door. But as the shadow, I'll soon find out. After all I've done for them, they betray my generosity. Men and women alike, they're crowded down at the mines of the hundreds. I'm going out to the balcony to observe them more clearly. Maxim, what's happened? Why are you so angry? Mrs. Maxim, oh, I... don't be startled. I'm here to help you. Listen closely. This is a fight for freedom. Oh, who speaks it? It's all such a strange dream. Do as I tell you without questioning. Rise out of your bed, out of your weakness, and fight as those people down at the mines are starting to fight. But I... I can't rise. I can't walk. Not without Maxim's help. You can. You shall. You've got to fight out of the weakness to strength and freedom. Yes. Yes. Fight out of weakness to... to strength and freedom... I can. I will stand. I see their game. 
They want a freedom apart from me. But they shan't have it. I stopped them before. I'll stop them again. No, Madison. Don't stop them this time. Don't. Serena, you... You standing alone. How dare you stand alone without my help? I'd rather die, Maxim. Standing alone as God intended me to stand than go on in a living death of the weakness that comes of your constant support. You two. After all I've done, devoted my life to you. What madness is in this place tonight? Madness is lifting from this place tonight, Maxim. What? What is that voice? Who speaks? Perhaps it is your conscience speaking, Maxim. Your conscience. Serena, what is that voice? Do you hear it? Or is this whole thing some crazy dream? I only know that I can stand alone and move alone. And if it's a dream, I hope I never wake. Listen closely, Maxim. Your conscience speaks again. You gave these poor creatures the things your millions could so easily buy. You felt great and noble and princely in the giving. And for that, you robbed them of their strength of will and muscle and heart. It is a crime. Just as stealing money is a crime. This is how they repay me, is it? They hurl my liberality back into my teeth and make it a reproach. Maxim, you are consumed by selfishness. A selfishness so great that it has sacrificed a thousand people and your, your wife and your son to its greedy demand. It's a lie! My whole life has been devoted to others. My people know I love them. I'll go to them. I, I'll talk to them. Will you also listen to them? They will listen to me. And I will give them their choice of life or death. Save them from themselves. A quick, merciful death. Yes, one turn of this lever, and in a few minutes the valley will be a deep and silent lake. Yes, one turn of this lever. For the second time, Maxim, your conscience speaks. Let it speak. I know what is best for my people. You care nothing about those people. How wrong you are, voice. I care enough about them to exterminate them all, rather than submit them to the corruption of an outside world. Just one turn of this handle. Just one turn of that handle. And you would be a murderer. The ungrateful have no right to live. Close those gates before it is too late. You have no right to pronounce death. For if there's a guilty man in this valley today, you are that man. I? I guilty? Of what am I guilty? You attempted to buy the freedom of a thousand people, Maxim. To force them to the knees before you. And to keep them there for the rest of their lives. No! No, no, I... I didn't mean it that way. Just leave it... Oh, I'm upset it back. 
The rush of water against the gate is too strong. I can't turn it. Maxim, I'm here. Cranston. Lamont here beside you. Oh, Cranston, I'll help you. It's too late. Yes, together. Our combined strength. Help. They shall live. Maxim, what's wrong? There's blood on your lip. Something in me is broken. The weight of closing the gate. Here, lean on me. Wait. Look, look, Cranston, look. Coming there. Walking toward me. Look. Walking. My wife and my son. Yes, walking. Here, Maxim, take my arm. No, Cranston, I am dying. I gave my life closing those gates. Saving my people. Tell them that. Tell my wife and son. Please lean on me. Let me help you to your feet. No, no, look. <laughs> the weaker I grow the more strongly they walk. My wife and son, they are getting back what I took away. You're a great man at this moment, Maxim. And listen, down by the mines as the water recedes, they're cheering you, Maxim. Yes. Yes, I... I hear them cheering me. And they are the cheers of a living and a free people. Before you hear a preview of next week's shadow story, here's John Barclay, Blue Coal's heating expert, with more of his time and trouble-saving hints on furnace care and attention. Mr. Barclay. Thank you, Ken Roberts, and good afternoon, friends. A great many homeowners are under the impression that they can save money by putting only a little coal on the furnace. On the contrary, that's one of the surest ways I know to actually waste money. A flimsy, shallow fire is apt to go out. It won't give you enough heat. And it causes constant trips to the cellar to refuel the fire. The economical way to fire your furnace is to keep a deep fire bed at all times. Build the fire up to the level of the bottom of the fire door. Of course, in milder weather, you can leave a little heavier layer of ash on the grates. This keeps the fire burning slowly, yet it keeps enough coal burning to give plenty of heat if the temperature should suddenly drop. And remember... If you feel your furnace isn't giving you 100% heating results, here's what you do. Phone your nearest blue coal dealer. Ask him to send a John Barclay serviceman to look over your furnace. These men are trained heating experts. They're fully qualified to locate the source of any possible furnace trouble and show you how it can be corrected. This John Barclay service is yours without any charge or obligation of any sort on your part. So always feel free to call your blue coal dealer. I thank you. And now for a preview of next week's exciting shadow adventure entitled Prelude to Terror. The eminent scientist, Professor Baker, is sitting in his study late one night when there is a knock on the door. Thinking it is his butler, Cooper, he says... Hey, come in, Cooper. Oh, I thought it was Cooper. Shut up, Professor Baker. I got a present for you. Oh. Uh, here's what the boss wants. And before he's through, the people of this city will wish they were dead like you, Professor Baker. Why did this man kill Professor Baker? For what reason does he say an entire city will welcome death? Be sure to find out next week when you hear The Shadow's newest adventure, Prelude to Terror. Today's program is based on a story copyrighted by The Shadow magazine. All the characters and all the places named are fictitious. 
Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. The Shadow Magazine is now on sale at your local newsstand. The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The Shadow knows. <laughs> Next week, same time, same station, Blue Coal, America's finest anthracite, will again present another thrilling adventure of the shadow. Be sure to listen, and be sure to burn Blue Coal, the solid fuel for solid comfort. Yes, sir, he's awake, but he's sort of wishing he wasn't. No. Not after last night. I never saw Bob Adams that drunk before. I gave him some coffee a little while ago, and you know what, Mr. Dillon? He wouldn't drink it before he poured about a spoonful of tobacco in. <laughs> That's mule skinner style, Chester. My. Bring him out here, huh? Yes, sir. Come on out into the sun, Adams. It's time to own up to your dark and evil ways. Well, I sure must have been drunk if I let you throw me in jail, Chester. I didn't throw you in jail. He did. But I could have. Well, howdy, Marshal Dillon. I thought you was out of town. Well, I got back late last night, Adam. Just in time to stop you from blowing the roof off the Oliver again. Oh, well, I don't even remember. Oh. Yeah, there's your gun. You, you turning me loose? Now, you didn't commit any crimes. You were just getting worked up to stop. Oh, well, thanks for stopping me, Marshal. I guess I was a little wild. Too much to celebrate, that's what. Oh, what were you celebrating, anyway? Well, selling out. Selling out? Yeah. You mean you sold your freight business? Both wagons and all my mules, the whole caboodle. Yes, sir, I sold out just like everybody else. What? It happened while you was away, Mr. Dillon. Every freighter in town has sold his outfit to a man called Ivy from St. Louis. We all got a good price for him, too. More than he was worth. Well, what's this Ivy going into the freighting business so heavy for? Uh, says he wants to invest all his money in one business, not scattered around. Well, what are you and the other men going to do now that he's bought you out? Oh, we'll 
Blow our money for a while and then probably go to work for Ivy. <laughs> you know how it is. Only man who hasn't sold out is Joe Trimble. And that's just because he won't get back to town till today sometime. There's nothing wrong with Ivy, Marshal. He's the nicest fellow you ever met. But I don't much like that man he has following him around all the time. Cam Spiegel. No, I don't like him neither. Did you say Cam Spiegel? That's right. Where are they staying? At the Dodge House. Why, Marshal, what's wrong? I don't know, Adams. But if this Ivy has Cam Spiegel with him, there's plenty wrong. Marshal here. That's right. Well, come in, Marshal. Come in. I've been wanting to meet you. <laughs> well, Marshal, Dodge acquired a new citizen while you were away. Yeah. I've so set myself up in the freighting business. And as soon as I buy out Joe Trimble, I'll start running it. Well, that's fine, Ivy. But there isn't much money in freighting. None of these men you bought out are exactly rich. Well, it's like any other business, Marshal. It depends on how it's run. Yeah. You, uh, you've had a lot of experience hauling freight, huh? Mm, none at all, but, uh, I hope to learn. Of course, I'll just manage the business, you understand? Ah, uh-huh. Ivy, I'm, uh, curious about two things. Tell you anything you want to know, Marshal. I realize my methods are a little, uh, unusual. Like paying these men more than their outfits are worth? Oh, uh, I did that just to be sure nobody could say I'm unfair. And also because I don't want to be bothered with any competition once I get started. <laughs> what was the other question, Marshal? Cam Spiegel. Uh, Cam. Uh, well, he works for me. Most businessmen don't need a man like Cam around. Well, I agree, Marshal. But you see, I brought a lot of money with me from St. Louis, and uh, I hired Cam for protection, you might say. Oh, here he is now. Uh, Cam, this is Marshal Dillon. Really is, ain't it? Oh, you know him? Me and the Marshal have known each other a long time, Ivy. Fact is, he run me out of Amarillo once. Ain't that right, Marshal? You'll give me the same reasons and I'll run you out of Dodge, Cam. Maybe I don't run so easy as I did then. Oh, oh come now, gentlemen. I'm sure there won't be any trouble. Uh, Marshal, Cam's hired as my bodyguard. And if he goes beyond that, I'll fire him. It might be too late by then, Ivy. But he can stay around. Both of you can. Till I find out what you're up to. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? Joe Trimble just pulled into town. He's with his wagons outside here. He'd like to talk to you. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, hello, Trimble. Marshal, I couldn't leave my mules out here. I'd have come inside. Oh, that's all right. 
What's the trouble? <laughs> Nothing with me, but Jim Honecker down at the Sand Creek Stage Station said to tell you there's been too much engine sign around for comfort the last few days. Uh, he wants me to pass the word on to the Army, huh? Yeah. Uh, Chester, will you ride out to Fort Dodge and tell Major Honeyman? Yes, sir. I'll get started right away. I didn't see no engine sign, Marshal. I think Jim's getting a mite spooky living out there alone so much. I thought he had someone with him now. Nah, uh, nah. Uh, fella couldn't stand it. He ran off. Oh, hello, Marshal. Oh, Chester told me this is Joe Trimble. It is. Well, Trimble, I've been waiting for you. My name's Ivy. How do you do? Uh, and this is Cam Spiegel. How do you do? Hello? Trimble, I uh, understand you own three freight wagons and a dozen mules. That's right. Well, I've bought out every other freighter in Dodge, and I'm prepared to give you $1,000 in cash for your outfit. Is that true? Ask the Marshal here. Yeah, they've all sold, Trimble. He's offered them too much money to resist, I guess. Well, I ain't selling. I've been freighting over that trail for ten years, and I ain't quitting now. All right, I'll give you uh, $1,500, Trimble. I don't understand you, Ivy. You bought out everybody else. What do you need my outfit for? Ain't you got enough now? <laughs> yeah, it's my way of doing business, Trimble. You accept the offer? Ivy, I got a little house at the edge of town. My wife's waiting for me there right now. Ain't much, but I built it out of the money. I made hauling goods up and down the trail. Maybe someday I'll build me a better one. If I sell out to you, I won't have nothing after a year or so, and I ain't going to do it. Uh, perhaps this has been too uh, sudden for you, Trimble. Uh, why don't you think it over first, and then let me know? I'm letting you know right now. You're kind of stubborn, ain't you, Mule Skinner? That's right, I am. Uh, that's enough, Cap. Well, you're the only competition I'll have, Trimble, but uh, I'm sure we'll get along fine. There's plenty of business, Ivy. Of course. But anyway, if you change your mind, you just let me know. Sure. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Come along, Cam. Ivy ain't handy when you change your mind, Trimble. You can always let me know. Now, what's he mean by that, Marshal? I don't know, Trimble, but we'll find out soon enough. What are you doing? What is all this? Curtains, Mr. Dillon. Curtains? Well, what for? Well, sir, a girl I know got some new ones, and she gave me these, and I thought nailing them up would make this place a little more inviting, if you know what I mean. A jail inviting? Oh, well, Mr. Dillon, I don't aim to hang none in the I cell. don't aim for you to hang them anywhere. Now pull them down and throw them out. <sighs> yes, sir. But that little girl's sure going to be my disappointment. She threw him out herself, didn't she? Frills. Marshal. Oh. Hello, Chester. Hello, Trimble. You want to buy some... Chester. Marshal, you know what that man Ivy's done now? What, Trimble? Well, you remember yesterday how he tried to buy me out, and I couldn't understand why he needed every last freight outfit in Dodge? Uh, you know now, huh? I sure do. Marshal, just this morning, Ivy's doubled the usual prices for freighting. Doubled? That's what he did. 
Every merchant in town is hot and mad about it, too. They all come to me and want me to do all their freighting, but of course I can't. Not with only three wagons. Yeah. So that's Ivy's way of running a business right. Uh, he come to see me, too. Well, what do you want? He said if I doubled my prices, too, then everything would be fine. But if I didn't, it'd be uh, unfair competition for him. You gonna do it? Of course I ain't. I'm an honest man, Marshal. Then you're in trouble. Bad trouble. What for? When are you making your next trip, Trumbull? Oh, we're getting loaded now. I'm leaving for Sand Creek in the morning. Yeah. I, uh, I think I'll kind of ride along with you, Trumbull. But, uh, don't say anything to anybody about it, huh? Oh. Oh, it's that other fella, ain't it? That, uh, Cam Spiegel. That's what Ivy hired him for, Trumbull, in case he ran into somebody stubborn. Like you. We will return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment, but first... Tomorrow night, CBS Radio's Gene Autry saves a father from a lifetime of regret when the parent launches a campaign to make his son prove himself a he-man. Riding an outlaw bronco is part of the curriculum that worries Gene so much. Don't miss the Western adventures and Western songs of CBS Radio's Gene Autry show tomorrow evening on most of these stations. Now the second act of Gunsmoke. wouldn't be much trouble to hide out with a rifle somewhere along the trail and shoot a teamster off his wagon. And since it was so easy, I figured that was how Ivy would tell Cam Spiegel to get Trimble out of the way. So I took my horse and went along on the trip to Sand Creek. As it turned out, I might as well have stayed in Dodge. In fact, it would have been better if I had. We made Sand Creek all right, and a few days later, early one morning... We were almost back to Dodge when we saw Chester riding out of town to meet us. Hey, he's riding like a big wind, Marshal. Yeah, any time his horse isn't walking slow, Chester's in a real hurry, Trumbull. <laughs> Chester ain't exactly all engine, is he? No. But he can surprise you sometimes. I know. I've seen him. Well, let's pull up here. Who oh, there? Who? Oh. I was hoping I'd find you close by. Uh, is there anything wrong, Chester? Yes, sir, there sure is. We had a fire in Dodge early this morning. What? Fire? Where? What burned? Trimble, I sure to hate to tell you, but it was your house. Was it bad, Chester? Plumb to the ground. My wife. Oh, Doc's out there with her now. She was still alive when I left. Oh, Give Tremble your horse, Chester. You can drive the wagon on in from here. Yes, sir. That's why I come to meet you. Here, Tremble. Thanks, Chester. Any idea how it happened, Chester? No, sir. Nobody has. <laughs> 
All right, we'll see you in Dodge. What's the trouble? Just now, covered her up, Trimble. She's dead. I did everything I could. Sure. Sure, of course you did, Doc. I don't know how she lived as long as she did. They weren't able to get her out soon enough, Trimble, but she was so far gone when they did. Well, she didn't suffer much. You can be sure of that. She must have been awful scared, though. You leave her to me now, Trimble. I'll take care of her and let you know when you can come and get her. She was asleep when it happened, or she'd have had no trouble getting out. Yeah, she was asleep, yes. And how'd the fire get started? She couldn't have spilled nothing. Well, I don't know, Trimble. Nobody does. Uh, Doc, who saw the fire first? Oh, some cowboy, Matt. They say he uh, rounded up a few men from out of the oasis, but there was nothing they could do. He, he didn't know there was anybody inside the house. Ah, uh, Trimble. You out here too, Ivy? I, uh came as soon as I heard about it. In fact, uh, I was at the Oasis when that writer reported it. Uh, the other men can tell you. Okay, what do I care? You have my deepest sympathy, Trimble. Uh, if there's anything I can do... No. No, nothing. You can do something for me, Ivy. For you, Marshal? Yeah. Where's Cam? Why, uh, he's right over there. Call him. Well, all right. Oh, Cam. Cam. Nothing but uh, Marshal Dillon seems to. He does, huh? Where were you when you heard about the fire, Cam? I was in bed, Marshal. To woke you up? Nobody. I heard people shouting. I got up. Anybody see you? I don't know. Why should they? Ivy. Uh, yes, Marshal. You still want to buy Trumbull's outfit? He might sell. No. Why, of course I do. But I'll only give you a thousand dollars, Trimble. You've waited too long. I didn't say I'd sell you nothing. What makes you think I Wait would? Wait a minute, Trimble. Ivy, you got a good alibi. I'm sure of that. I won't even bother to check on it. But you don't seem to have one, Cam. Now, wait a minute, Marshal. You're going too far if you're suggesting that either one of us had anything to do with this. I won't stand... Shut up, Ivy. Now, how about it, Cam? You know you don't scare me none, Marshal. I can't prove you had anything to do with this, Cam. No, you can't. But you'll have to prove you didn't. And you'll have to prove it by someone reliable. I'll give you till noon. What happens at noon, Marshal? You leave town. Oh, now, aren't you being a little high-handed, Marshal? Call it what you want, Ivy. But he still has till noon. <laughs> Yeah, what is it, Kitty? Matt, look at this. Huh? That's $300. Uh-huh. What's this for? I want you to take it and give it to Cam Spiegel. Cam? I got it from him. Along with a hint that if I didn't take it, I'd end up in a ditch with a bullet in my head. Oh. You were supposed to be with Cam last night, is that it? That's it. And the idea is that if I alibi for him, you'd believe it. Oh, Cam's right, Kitty. I would 
Well, it's up to you how you get the money back to him, Matt. But couldn't you stuff it into a shotgun and give it to him that way? I've often said it's a good thing you're not a man, Kitty. If I were, I probably wouldn't be any better than the rest of you. Well, it's almost noon. Matt? Yeah. I'll buy you a drink after. How can you? You just threw away $300. Matt. You see it, Chester? Right in the Longhorn there. Trimble come in, tried to shoot Cam Spiegel, and Cam killed him. Trimble drew first, Mr. Dillon, but he just wasn't fast enough. Get out of the way, Chester. Yes, sir. Tried to kill me, Marshal. Self-defense, he drew first. Cam, I've changed my mind about your leaving town. What? You're going to jail instead. Jail? Everybody here's a witness to this, Marshal. I'm talking about Tremble's wife. I haven't got enough evidence to hang you, but you'll spend a long time in prison. Now turn around while I take your guns. Told you before, Marshal, I don't scare so easy as I once did. You're under arrest, Cam. No. Not yet, I ain't. All right, quiet, everybody. I said quiet, everybody. Ivy, come over here. That, uh, that was mighty fast, Marshal. Uh, but he had it coming. He shouldn't have tried to draw on you. Tremble's dead, too, Ivy. Trimble tried to kill him, Marshal. You know that. I guess Trimble figured he had a pretty good reason. That may be. Uh, but you can't prove I had anything to do with it. If I could, I'd throw you in jail. But I'm not even going to run you out of town. Okay? You've certainly no reason to. I'll see you later, Marshal. Just a minute, Ivy. Here. Here's $300 Cam gave to Kitty to alibi for him. Somehow she didn't want to do it. I don't know anything about it. Why give it to me? Take it, Ivy. It was your money in the first place. Cam was just working for you. I won't stand for this, Marshal. You have no right. You know, the Trembles were pretty well liked around here, Ivy. You just might get out of town alive. If you hurry. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. 
Featured in the cast were Joseph Kearns, Herb Ellis, Vic Perrin, and Jack Crucian. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Service to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Johnny Dollar puts his signature on an action-packed mystery thriller every Tuesday evening on CBS Radio over most of these same stations. Here, Hollywood star John Lund as Johnny Dollar, the man with the action-packed expense account. He's a freelance investigator. His territory takes him the four corners of the globe. This thriller's a hit show that will keep you on the edge of your chair every single second. Tuesday night, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is waiting just for you. George Walsh speaking. Lionel Barrymore's Radio Hall of Fame is great Sunday night drama on the CBS Radio Network. Until the war with Japan is completely won, our fighting forces will need the full support of every American on the home front. Today they are combining in an all-out attack against Japan. In planes, ships, and tanks, our fighters are battling forward to total victory. And we must help them gain that victory. Here's what we're asked to do. Stay on war jobs until finally released. Keep on buying more and more war bonds. Keep on supporting home front activities and observing wartime regulations. These next months will be vitally important. In your letters to servicemen, tell them you know what they're up against. Let them know that a united America is behind them as they face the fight that lies ahead. In spite of recent setbacks, our Japanese enemy remains strong and determined to fight to the last ditch. The harder we fight here at home, the sooner will come the day of peace. So don't let up for a minute, because minutes lost may mean lives lost. Lever Brothers Company, makers of Swan, the soap that gives you a wonderful new kind of suds, presents... Our friend, Swan, with my friend, Irma. Starring Mary Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship when other friendships have been forgot. Theirs will still be hot. My friend, Irma. Christmas Eve at 8224 West 73rd Street, New York City. And on the third floor in apartment 3B, all is serene and quiet, except for Irma Peterson, who is reading. T'was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring. Oh, look, 
chain of mouse. <laughs> now, don't get excited. Don't get excited. It's lost. It's probably looking for Professor Kapotkin's room. <laughs> oh, gee, Jane. I've never been so happy on Christmas Eve. And, and that's because I have such wonderful friends. You and Richard and Mrs. O'Reilly and Professor Kapotkin. And, of course, Al. Oh, by all means, Al. Of course, I can't really consider Al a friend because I'm going to marry him. <laughs> well, naturally. And, Jane, you don't know what it means to have a few good friends you can count on, especially on Christmas Eve, when you'd, well, when you'd like to be with your family, but, but mine lives over 1,500 miles from here. You know, Irma, you never say much about your family. Oh, Jane, there isn't much to say. They're just an average family, just like me. <laughs> Perfectly normal people. No, for instance, there's, uh... Well, there's Bertha Peterson, my younger sister. She's not as old as I am. Yeah, it figures. And there's my brother, Ernie Peterson. He's engaged. Uh, to be married, of course. Of course. Honey, <laughs> what, what about your parents? I miss them the most. They were just like a mother and father to me. <laughs> you know, that happens in most families, Emma. But, gee, they're all in Minnesota, and I'm here, but I'm not lonesome because, because I'm surrounded by good friends, and, Jane, I, I really appreciate them. That's why I'm giving a Christmas Eve surprise party tonight for you, Richard, Professor Kropotkin, Miss O'Reilly, and Al. Tonight? Mm -hmm. Oh, Gee, Irma, honey, I don't know how to tell you, but you see... Uh, tell me what? Well, dear, you, you see... Uh, excuse me a minute, will you, honey? Hello? Oh, yeah, hello, Richard. What? Yes, yes, I know it's formal. No, I, I've never been to the Long Island Country Club. Yeah, I'm terribly excited. It'll be our first Christmas Eve together. Yeah, I'll be ready. Goodbye, dear. Can you... You, you mean you're going out tonight with Richard? What about my Christmas Eve party? Well, honey, you, you didn't say anything about it, and Richard invited me to a Christmas party at the Long Island Country Club, and I'd hate to miss it. It's the affair of the season. But this is Christmas Eve, and I thought we'd be together. Christmas Eve isn't like other holidays, you know. Well, I realize that, honey, well, but... Oh, I, I could understand if it was Independence Day, then we wouldn't have to be together. We could be independent. <laughs> Honey, honestly, honey, I'm terribly sorry, but there's just nothing I can do about it now. You see, Richard asked me weeks ago, and... Well, anyway, my not being here shouldn't spoil your party. You'll still have Professor Kropotkin and Mrs. O'Reilly and, and Al. I understand, Jane. I, I still have the others. Sure. Come in. It's only me, Professor Kropotkin. <laughs> How are my two little Christmas trees? One full-grown and one a little sapling. Uh, <laughs> why, professor. Excuse me, a little yuletide joke. <laughs> By the way, girls, a Merry Christmas to you both. Merry Christmas to you, too. Merry Christmas, Professor. I hope you'll excuse me for coming down. I don't mean to interrupt, but I wasn't feeling so good. And when I don't feel good, I always rush out of my room as fast as I can. Why? I wouldn't be found dead in that place. <laughs> Well, girls, do you realize tonight's Christmas Eve? Oh, yes, and just look at that blanket of snow outside. Isn't it lovely? 
that is a matter of opinion. If Mrs. O'Reilly doesn't put glass in my windows, not only will I have a blanket of snow, but I'll have a carpet of the same material. <laughs> Irma, you, you better ask the professor about this evening, honey, before it's too late. Oh, yes. Uh, professor, will you come to my Christmas Eve party tonight? Tonight? Oh, Irma, I'm so sorry. You mean you can't come either? It can be helped, Irma. Tonight I'm playing my fiddle at the Gypsy Tea Room. <laughs> I've been practicing all day. Oh, that's terrible. I know, but they pay me for it. <laughs> oh, gee, first Jane disappoints me, and now you. Well, look, honey, the professor can't help it. He must earn a living. And after all, you'll still have Mrs. O'Reilly and, and maybe the Martins upstairs. And, of course, there's Al. Come in. Oh, hello, everybody. Merry Christmas. Oh, the same to you, Mrs. O'Reilly. Merry Christmas. Say, Mrs. O'Reilly, that's a beautiful wreath you got on your door downstairs. But that sign in the middle of it. Oh, you don't like it? Merry Christmas, lots of cheer. Remember the landlady or you'll freeze next year. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's not a sentimental thought. (laughs) Oh, Mrs. O'Reilly, I'm giving a big surprise Christmas Eve party tonight for you and Al. Will you come tonight? Oh, Irma, darling, I'm so sorry. You mean you're busy, too? Yes, the Martins have invited me to go to Jersey with them. And since they owe me four months back rent, I can't afford to let them get on the train by themselves. (laughs) (laughs) This is awful. First Jane turned me down, and then the professor. Now you. Well, maybe next year, Irma. Merry Christmas and goodbye. Oh, sweetie, now stop crying. I know you're disappointed, but you should have told us about your party earlier. Besides, you won't be left alone. You won't be left alone. You bought some food, didn't you? (laughs) What do you mean? Of course I bought food. Then Al will show up. I'll guarantee it. Speaking of food, I think I'll go up to my room and have my dinner. Oh, are you cooking, Professor? No, I take one look at that dump and I sit down and eat my heart out. (laughs) Merry Christmas, girls. I'm sorry, Irma. Honey, I'm sorry things turned out this way for you. It's all right, Jane. This is one way of finding out who my real friends are. They're Al, every one of them. Come in. Hello, Jane. Hi, chicken. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Al. Oh, Al, merry, merry Christmas. I'm so glad to see you. Same here, chicken. I like being with you, too. You mind if I warm my hands on the radiator? Of course not, honey. How did they get so cold? Wanted to take the Crosstown trolley, but with all that snow on the ground, it took me four hours to find a transfer. (laughs) That's too bad, and your poor face, it's so red. Uh, red face? Well, that ain't from the cold chicken. They caught me with yesterday's transfer. <laughs> oh, my goodness, look at the time, and Richard's going to pick me up in an hour. I'm not even dressed yet. Aren't you going to take your top coat off, Al? Oh, thanks, Jane, but I ain't staying. Just come in to wish chicken a Merry Christmas. I got to be on my way. Got a big deal, bro. Oh, Al. Oh. <laughs> chicken, it's important. You and your deal. Well, business is business, chicken. I, I gotta be running along. But I'll be left all alone on Christmas Eve, and, and Al, I depended on you. 
My own boyfriend. Chicken, if I could only explain. Oh, don't bother. None of you must think very much of me if you can leave me alone on Christmas Eve. Fine, friends, I have goodbye. How do you like that? Al, of all the low-down, contemptible, good-for-nothing... Hold it, Jane. I won't have you saying those things about the girl I love. (laughs) I'm not talking about Irma. I mean you. How could you desert her Christmas Eve of all nights? Gee, me, I have to go out with Richard, but you're her boyfriend. Jane, I I love Irma. And when a man's in love, he's not responsible. He, He may do strange things. Things he'd never do in his right mind. What are you talking about? I went and got a job. You got a job? Al, have you been drinking? No, it'd shock you, but it, it's just for one night. Want to make a little dough and buy Irma a present. Well, I apologize, Al. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Forget it. Listen. Listen, Al. It's the Christmas carolers. Gee, that's pretty. I, 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 I'd like to stay, but I got to get to work. T- tell her I'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye, Al. It's me, Richard. It's Jane. Jane? What's wrong? You sound terrible. Richard, I I can't go with you to the Christmas dance. Why not? Are are you ill? No, no, Richard, I'm all right. It's just that, well, Irma, well, you see, well, Irma hasn't any family or relatives in New York, and and, and this Christmas Eve, all our friends seem to be busy, and, oh, gee, I just couldn't leave her alone, Richard. I wouldn't want you to. Are you sure you mean that, Richard? Of course, honey, I understand. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Goodbye, and Merry Christmas, Jane. Merry Christmas, Richard. Al, I thought you left. Came back from my hat. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, Jane, but if you're willing to give up a good time tonight for Irma, I guess it's my duty to be with Chicken, too. Oh, Al, that'd be just wonderful. Well, well, what about the present you were going to get for Irma? If you don't work tonight, where would you get the money for it? I'm going to hawk my watch. Oh, but, Al, that's the only thing you own. (laughs) You know that no matter how bad times have been, you always said you'd never hawk your watch. Well, a man like me don't need a watch. I sleep all day, so time is not important. (laughs) And at night, it's too late to do anything. Come in. Oh, it's you, Professor. Excuse me, Jenny. I've been thinking about poor little Irma and... Well, I decided to give up the job, so tonight I could be with her. Oh, but, Professor, won't that cost you money? You get big tips during Christmas. On Christmas Eve, it's not important to make money. It's important to be with friends. After all, what's money? Well, it's pretty important. I see you've been talking to Mrs. O'Reilly again. (laughs) No, my little Irma has no father in New York, so tonight, Professor Kropotkin will be her father. Atta boy, Pop. Listen, Al, the first chance I get, I'm disinheriting you. Excuse me, Mrs. 
Excuse me, everybody. I took the liberty of walking in. Oh, Mrs. O'Reilly, I, th- I thought you were on your way to New Jersey. Well, I changed my mind. I got to thinking about poor little Irma being all alone tonight. And I just didn't have the heart to go. I'm going to stay here with Irma. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Professor Kropotkin just said he's going to be her father. I'll tell you, if that's the case, I'll be her mother. <laughs> I got news for you. If you're the mother, I'll be on the train for Reno in the morning. Now, listen, listen, everybody. I've got a wonderful idea. Irma was going to throw a surprise party for us, and now we'll throw one for her. We'll give her the best Christmas any girl ever had. Swell. I'll go out and hock my watch and buy the present. I'll go get my violin. And we can have the party in my apartment. It's bigger. Come along, Janie. We'll start decorating. Oh, it'll be a merry Christmas. Come on, Professor, take my arm. A fair swap. She's been taking my blood all year. <laughs> oh, honestly, just wait until Irma finds out. She'll be the happiest girl in New York. Rochester, Cleveland, and Chicago. Next, where to, miss? Please, mister, what is the fare to Minneapolis? Uh, $58 round trip. $58? I only have six. (laughs) Where can I go for $6? $6? Let me see. How about Niagara Falls? Oh, I couldn't go to Niagara Falls. I'm not even married. (laughs) Uh, I'll find some other place to go. Merry Christmas. And now Susie Swan sings to us. Listen. My advice says Susie, you like this brand new kind of lather, so be choosy. Swan gives you beauty lather, rich as cream. Your skin stays soft as any dream. And fresh as dew, I swan to you, says Susie. Ah, say, Susie Swan, you must have been eavesdropping on some beauty experts to come up with such grand advice for the ladies' complexions. And for you ladies listening, I'd like to say that Susie's advice about swan soap is well worth taking, because swan's wonderful new kind of beauty lather gives you the kind of complexion care you've been dreaming of. Yes, swan will leave your skin fresh, soft, and lovely. Now, for one thing, Swan's new kind of beauty lather is gentle for even the most delicate skins. Why, when you smooth on that extra-rich, extra-creamy lather, you can fairly feel how gently it cleanses and how thoroughly your face is left glowingly clean. Then rinse your face, and you'll notice another Swan beauty advantage. That's the way your face feels, smooth and fresh, not all tight and over-soaked. No, because Swan's wonderful new kind of lather rinses away so completely. So the next time you wash your face... Take Susie Swan's advice and try white floating Swan Soap's wonderful new kind of beauty lather. Well, we're all down in Mrs. O'Reilly's room. The professor, Al, and myself. We're setting the table, and Mrs. O'Reilly's out trying to find a Christmas tree. Irma? Irma's probably walking around the block. When we're all set to surprise her, we'll send Al out to find her. Right now, Al is beaming proudly. Come January the 1st, he will have completed a solid six years of steady unemployment 
Professor Kropotkin seems to resent Mrs. O'Reilly's quarters. My, my. She lives like a queen, and I live like a dog. <laughs> now, look, Professor, I know that you and Mrs. O'Reilly have had some differences in the past, but now this is Christmas Eve, and I want all that to be forgotten. You know, she's really a warm-hearted person. Look, look at the trouble she's gone to. She even put mistletoe on the ceiling. She is wasting her time. I wouldn't kiss her if I thought she'd cut my rent. Easy, she's coming down the hall. Oh, me aching feet. I've walked all over and I can't find a Christmas tree. Did you see Irma anywhere in the neighborhood? No, I didn't, but it's nothing to worry about. We must get the tree before she gets back. Tree? Well, there's only one man who can help us. Who else? Who else but... Hello, Joe. <laughs> Al, got a problem. Need a Christmas tree right away. Huh? I can get one at Macy's already trimmed for a dime. Oh, the dime is for a glass cutter. The tree is in the window. <laughs> now, Joe, this is Christmas Eve. When I hear jingle bells, I don't want them on a patrol wagon. <laughs> what, Joe? You're playing Santa Claus tonight? Going down a chimney? <laughs> Joe, this is quite a change for you, isn't it? Oh, you're going in with an empty bag and coming out with a full one. <laughs> Well, Joe, nothing I can say except good luck and Merry Christmas. Oh, Al, what are we going to do? It's getting so late. Oh, that, that must be Irma. Now, now, let's all surprise her. Stand over there. Let's put out all the lights and give her a big kiss. Uh, come in. Merry Christmas, honey. Here's one for me. Me too, my darling daughter. For goodness sake, will someone please put on the lights? <laughs> I thought Irma needed a shave. Oh, gee, Richard, I didn't expect you. I thought you went to the club. Oh, I couldn't take it. Same old crowd, same old monotony. So I realized that I'd rather be here with real people on Christmas Eve. Oh, Richard, I'm so happy, and you're more than welcome. Oh, where's Irma? Well, she kind of thought we were all deserting her, so she went out in a huff. That's why we're throwing a surprise party for her, and we're waiting for her to come back. I don't want to find chicken until we can get a Christmas tree, though. Uh, got any ideas, Richard? Well, why don't we go out and buy one? Nice gesture, Richard. We'll wait here for you. <laughs> oh, Richard, you don't have to. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jane. I saw several on the way over. I'll have one in a few minutes. I'll be right back. And I'll get the cake out of the oven. And I'll make some punch. And I'll tell you when it's right. <laughs> hey, Jane, what are you crying about? The party's taking form. I know it. So wonderful having everybody pitch in, Richard getting a tree and all of you giving up things. It's just the most wonderful Christmas I ever had. Look, lady, this is your third round trip on this ferry boat. Ain't you got a home? Ain't you got any friends? No. Well, take my advice. Go get some. All right, I'll, I'll try. Thank you and Merry Christmas to you. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. On a sleigh. Oh, what fun it is to ride. On a sleigh. On a one horse. Uh, hold it, hold it, fellas. Look, uh, lady, we're Christmas carolers. Now, we don't do this for a living, but we enjoy it. And we rehearse a great deal. Now, we don't mind you joining us, but we like to have the sleigh come after the horse. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, fellas. Let's do it again. 
Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride. When the horse comes after the sleigh. <laughs> look, 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 lady, uh, would you mind running along? Oh, all right. I was just lonely. Merry Christmas. Tom and lady, have you got a dime for a cup of coffee? Oh, yes, poor man. Merry Christmas. Uh, maybe you ought to have another dime for a donut. Oh, thank you. Oh, dear, I don't have any change. Uh, would you like me to break that five for you? Well, if you don't mind. Uh, are you all alone in New York, too? Yeah. How about you? I'm from Minnesota. Minnesota? How well I know that place. You know, you look very familiar. I do? Well, my name is Peterson. Of course. You're Peterson's little daughter. (laughs) My father's name is George. Yeah, let me think. Peterson. Say, that must be George Peterson. How did you know? <laughs> Why, I remember. You used to live in, um, uh... Minneapolis. Hey, let me see. George Peterson, Minneapolis. <laughs> That's the place. I never forget a name. Oh, well, it, it's so nice to meet, to meet old friends. Yeah. Especially when you're lonely. You can keep the five dollars, sir. Oh, thank you. But this is only a loan. I'll return it the next time I see your father. Good old Fred Petersburg in Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's Peterson in Minnesota. Oh, mister, mister. <laughs> We've walked for miles. Maybe we better go home and call the police to look for Irma. Yeah, maybe you're right, Jane. Pardon me, but you got a dime. Oh, Al, it's you. You got that quarter you owe me? <laughs> Mushface, ain't you got no character? How can you panhandle on Christmas Eve? Great pickings tonight. Just got a fin from a blonde. Told her I knew her old man, Peterville uh, Peterson in Minnesota. Peterson. Al. Mushface, which way'd she go? Across town, you know. What's the difference? Oh, I've been feeling like a crumb ever since I clipped it. Seemed like such a nice kid. Yeah, would you give her back this spin? Yeah, thanks. And Merry Christmas. Hey, bud, you got a time for a cup of coffee? Come on, Al. Come on, let's go home and call the police. I- I'm really getting panicky. All right, Jane, I'm with you. lady. I seen that picture, Mildred Pierce. Now, you get off this bridge. I was just looking at the water, Mr. Watchman. Oh, look, lady, don't look down there. Everything that's beautiful is up here. It's Christmas Eve, you know. Yes, I know. And I'm so lonely. Oh, I get it. You're all alone, huh? (laughs) Yes. Uh, You got any friends? Yes, but... My closest friends are far away. Oh, now, don't cry, sister. You're coming home with me. We ain't got much, but we're happy to share it. 
Hey, Bill. Yeah, yes, Sergeant. Did you happen to see a blonde girl? Uh, say, lady, what's your name? Irma Peterson. That's all we want to know. Come on along, sister. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Didn't do what? I don't know, but my boyfriend always says to say you didn't do it. Now, look, Janie, we got to be brave. Now it's up to the police. They'll find her, but we got to take our minds off it. Mrs. O'Reilly, would you like to dance? Oh, I'd love to. I'll dance with her. (laughs) I'll play the fiddle. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. How do you like that? I just started playing already. The neighbors got the police here. No, no, it's a squad car pulling up. I think it's Irma. My chicken. Oh, Al. Al, it's Irma. The police have found her. She's coming up the steps. Now, quick, turn out the lights, everybody. Come on, we can still surprise her and have the party. Uh, Come in, dearie. Oh, Irma, darling. Surprise, chicken. Here's a big kiss for you. And here's a kiss from your father. I <laughs> turn on the lights. I'm dying. I just keep this around. Oh, Irma, darling. Merry Christmas. Where have you been? You're all here. I, I thought no one loved me, and I... I felt so alone. Oh, honey, don't you know that people always spend Christmas Eve with their loved ones? You're the one we love the most. Exactly my sentiments. Oh, bless my little Irma. You're like my own daughter. Sure, chicken, I'd never leave you. I want to spend all my Christmas Eves with you. Oh, this is the best Christmas a girl ever had, surrounded by her friends. Oh, it's midnight. Is that right, Al? Wait a minute, look at my watch. Al, why are you going to the window? Watch happens to be across the street. (laughs) You're right, chicken. It's 12 o'clock. Merry Christmas, chicken. Merry Christmas, Al. And Merry Christmas, Professor Kapotkin and Mrs. O'Reilly and Richard and Jane and all our friends. Merry, Merry Christmas. And as for me, my sentiments are the same as those of my friend, Irma. Ladies, you can be sure you're getting complexion care that's the last word if you make White Floating Swan your facial soap. You see, Swan Soap gives you a wonderful new kind of lather. A new kind of beauty lather that's extra rich, extra creamy. A new kind of lather that smooths on your skin gently and softly, yet cleanses so thoroughly your skin is left fairly glowing with cleanliness. And Swan's new kind of beauty lather gives you another beauty advantage you'll love. And that's the way Swan rinses away. So completely your skin is left fresh and lovely... Not all tight and over-soaked. So, ladies, for a complexion care that's the last word, how about trying Swan's wonderful new kind of beauty lather? My Friend Irma, presented by Swan, another fine product of Lieber Brothers Company, was produced and directed by Cy Howard. Tonight's script was written by Cy Howard and Park Levy. Frank Bingman speaking. Here's to a Merry Christmas cake, the lighter, better-tasting kind you get with Spry. Delicate snow-white layers swirled with fluffy frosting and heaped high with coconut. Rich, chocolatey devil's food. Name your favorite and make it the Spry One Bowl Way. 
It's sure to be better tasting, made with spry. Because no other type of shortening has spry's amazing cake improver secret. For a gala holiday cake, rely on spry. Amazing spry with cake improver. That's S-P-R-Y, spry. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Now you can double your listening pleasure by subscribing to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. For only 99 cents a month, you gain access to more shows for your enjoyment. Subscribe now, and happy listening. everybody. Here we are all ready to take you down to Pine Ridge for another visit with Lum and Abner. Brought to you by the makers of Horlicks, the original malted milk. But first I have something to say that I feel is very important. All this week thousands of people like ourselves will be buying malted milk for themselves and for their families. Now I feel I can't use my time to better advantage tonight than to remind all our listeners who are going to buy malted milk to ask for and get Horlicks, the original and genuine. Not to accept one of the inferior imitations of Horlicks that are flooding the market. My friends, you don't get a bargain when you buy a substitute for Horlicks. That substitute may even be a mixture of skim milk, inferior malt powder, and ordinary sugar. Now that's no way to buy, especially when the health of your family and yourself is at stake. So I advise that you always ask for Horlicks and insist on it. Horlicks, which contains all the nourishment of rich, full cream milk and the finest of malted grains. You won't be disappointed then, for Horlicks always gives results. Keep a package on hand. It has so many uses. You can get it, you know, at your druggist in either natural or chocolate flavor. Ask for Horlicks at the fountain, too. You are entitled to the best. And now, let's see what's happening down in Pine Ridge. Well, when we left Lum and Abner last week, they had just received a telephone call from Squire Skimp, who was in charge of their circus at the county seat, informing them that a heavy windstorm had blown down the tent and that the two elephants and some of the other animals had broken loose and were terrorizing the citizens of the town. (laughs) Well, the old fellows made a hurried trip to the county seat to straighten out the difficulty. And apparently everything is running smoothly again. For as we look in on Pine Ridge today, we find Lum and Abner down at the Jotham Down store, where Grandpappy Spears is looking after Lum's interests. Listen. Well, Lum, if you're going to be here at the store for a few minutes, I'll take this batch of groceries on over to Seastrunk's. She says she's in a hurry for him. Yeah, all right, Grandpappy. I'll stay here till you get back. Me and Abner's got some business to straighten out here. Yeah, go ahead, Grandpappy. That voice of yours, Abner, sounds like you're hollering down a well. Yeah, you reckon them spectacles of mine could have affected my voice too long? I don't know, 
on my dove. Yeah, I believe that'd give me a cold somewhere. Affected my head. I mean, it's give me a headache. I know that. Oh. Well, let's get down to business. What do you want to do, Abner? You want to give up, quit right here, or go on? Well, we might wait and see how we come out over at Belleville this week before we decide. If we don't do no better than we done in there at the county seat, I'm in favor of just getting shut of it. Well, I still don't see what kept us from making some money in there, Lom. They had uncommonly big crowds. Yeah, but the expenses is eating us up. The overhead. The what? The overhead. Well, why don't we just cut that out, then? Cut out the overhead? Yeah, if that's what keeps us from making money, why, we can just cut it out. Well, we got to have some overhead. No, I don't know, Lom. Not with this pretty weather. I, I believe we can do without it. If it rains, why, we can just call the show off. You don't even know what I'm talking about. What's the weather got to do with the overhead? Well, we just wouldn't need no tent if the weather stays the pretty. The tent ain't overhead, Abner. Well, it's supposed to be. That's what a tent's for. The overhead ain't got nothing to do with a tent. It's the... Oh, now, I, I, I know what you're talking about now, sure. <laughs> What's the matter with me? <laughs> Why, uh, why don't why don't we fire every one of them trapeze performers, Aunt Lummy, if they're what's running up that expense? Abner, for goodness sake. Just because the trapeze performers is up in the top of the tent, that ain't no sign they're overhead. Well, maybe they ain't, but they sure look like it to me from where I was sitting. Well, they're overhead, but they ain't overhead. Overhead is expenses, like what the elephants eat. That's overhead. Oh, you, you mean hay, huh? Well, why didn't you say so? Long? What all animals eat and what the fat woman eats and all. You mean the fat woman's eating hay, too? Oh, I'll swan, Abner, you're the hardest fella to explain anything to I've ever seen in my life. The overhead is all the expense of the circus. Squire Skimp is overhead. He is? All the advertising and wages we're paying the performers and all such as that. You see, any business has got overhead to it. Well, what if they don't have no elephants to eat hay? They'll have some other kind of overhead. Like here in the store, uh, the business here, my overhead is Grandpappy Spears. If it wasn't for the overhead, a body could make money in any business. Well, if I was you, then I'd just fire Grandpappy. Get somebody in here, it weren't no overhead. Well, it ain't his fault. Can't you make him stop it? Stop what? Why be an overhead expense, eating hay or whatever it is he's doing? He ain't doing nothing, I told you. If I got somebody else in here, it'd be the same thing. Well, I swan to goodness. You still don't know what I'm talking about, Abner. What I'm trying to tell you is we've got so many expenses, they're eating up the profits. I'm trying to figure out where the trouble's at. Yeah. Well, it just looks to me like there's too much eating going on. Well, just forget about the eating. Now, here's a statement Squire made out for us when we was in there Saturday showing what we took in and showing all the expenses. It is. And that's what I called you to come over here first so that we could sit down and figure this thing out. You mean that you think he's made a mistake in his figures, huh? No, but we can tell by this where we can cut down some of the overhead. According to these figures here, we've uh, taken in $416 for the two days in there. Well, fine. Yeah, let's see now. Half of uh, uh, $416. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. That's what we're taking in. Don't start dividing it up yet. Well, I thought we was in partners on it. Half of it belonged yeah, to me. Yeah, but that's what I'm trying to tell you. The overhead ate it up. You mean to say that Squire and the elephants and the fat woman ate up $416 no, worth of overhead? they ain't. They ain't the only overhead we've got, Abner. Well, Grandpappy Spears ain't eating off the circus, too, is he? Abner, if you'll be quiet a minute, I'll explain the whole thing to you. Here, I'll read Squire's report, and you can see for yourself. Well, I doubt where I can see it with these spectacles on, but go ahead and read it. I'll take your word for it. These are the biggest figures Squire made i ever seen in my life. I can't see them. Looks that way through these spectacles. Receipts, that's the amount we took in, see, $416. Uh-huh. 
Uh, expenses. This is the overhead. Here's where we've got to find the leak. I thought you said it. It weren't the tent. Shut up and listen. Explain it to you. Feed for the animals, $87. Moving circus to county seat, $40. Yeah. Performers and circus hands, wages, $160. That's awful high. Advertising, that's uh, handbills and the one sheets, I believe he called them, and posters and stuff like that, $92. $92? Yeah. Well, we've got to advertise it. We're going to get anybody to come in there. Yeah, it's Let a lot know. of money. A lot of money. Damages on tent when blown down by a windstorm, $38. Yeah. Damages done by an elephant when he broke loose. That's that fruit stand he wrecked. $26. Yeah, well, I'm surprised to get out of that. Squire said he just tore that whole thing up. Oh, yeah. Expense of recapturing animals, rewards, and so forth, $43. The squire said that included some damages that the camels and the zebra done when they was loose, too. Yeah. And feed for the fat woman, two days, in parentheses, 16. In where? In parentheses. I thought it was in the county seat. Well, it was, but well, never mind. Two days, $16. You mean it costs $16 to feed her for two days? That's what he's got down here. I asked Squire about that, and he said that's money well spent, though. See, the more she eats, the fatter she'll get, and the fatter she gets, the more people want to see her, and the more people want to see her, the more money we'll make. Yeah, but she ought to feed herself, Lom. We, we can't afford to buy grub for her. Of course, more to feed her than it will them two elephants. Yeah, but Squire said we'll make it on, all back on the Slim Man, though. She made the same kind of a deal with him. Oh, well, that's all right, then. Here, next item. Food for Slim Man, dollar and twenty cents. Uh-huh. Incidental expense, $20. That's the last item. What's that? Incidental? Well, it's, uh... Huh? Well, it's just little things that he had to buy. Tickets and paint and extra help and one thing or another. Anyway, the whole thing figures up to $522.20, making us lose $106.20. We lost that much money? Yes, Squire had to stand some of the performers off before they, before they could get him to let him move the circus on over to Belleville. Well, now, they ought to be paid, Long. I know it. It's got me worried to death. Oh, my. And we owe $50 to that trucking company for moving them over to Belleville. Is that what they charge? Yeah. Of course, if they do well over there at Belleville, we might can pay them off and make a little money ourselves. That is, if they don't have no windstorm to blow the tent down again. Now, that's what ruined us in there at the county seats, that storm. Yeah. But you know, Lom, I don't trust that squire too far, neither. We, we ain't got no way of telling where he's turning all the money he took in or not. Well, I don't know, Abner. I can't help but believe squire's honest about this report. Well, I, I believe one of us ought to sell tickets, and then we know it. we're getting all the money that comes in there. Well, I can't do it with these spectacles of all I know. See, they magnify things so bad, don't nothing look right. Dime looks about like a half a dollar to me. I can't even make change in the store. Well, why don't you take your spectacles off, then? Well, I can't see nothing, then. I've wore these glasses now to where I have to keep them on. What about you selling tickets? Oh, I couldn't see nothing, Lom. I can't see nothing with mine on or without them either one. You know, Abner, I hate to say this, but he appeared to be such a nice fellow, but... That blame if I don't believe that spectacle salesman give us a very good fit in them glasses we bought off of him. Well, I never like to say nothing either, Lom, but I'm beginning to have my suspicions about him myself. He said that my eyes get used to him, but I told you I believe they're getting worse. Yeah, I bound you these specs had something to do with these headaches we've been having. Well, I tried to see him in there Friday, but he ain't with the circus no more. Why, he has done it. I've seen him talk with him. No, no, that ain't the same fella, Lom. They look alike, but I jumped on him about these spectacles of mine not fitting him. He said that he never had saw me before. Yeah, he tried to tell me that, too, but I 
Wait a minute. That's the store ring. Somebody wants some groceries, I reckon. Yeah. Hello? This is a Jotham Down store. I'm Eddie's talking. Mom? Oh, all right. I'll hold it. <laughs> Belleville calling. Must be Squire making a report. Yeah, must be. I hope they ain't had no more storms over there. Hello? This is him. Throw that tent down. Yeah, I allowed it was you, Squire. <laughs> yeah, how was business today? Huh? What's the reason you never? Two hundred dollars. Well, that's a pretty good business, yeah. Well, Abner's here now. We, we'll try to raise it some way or other. I, I'll call you back after a while. All right. Goodbye. Squire says there's a city license there at Belleville, and it'll cost us $200 cash before we can open the circus up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, we just wonder how long Lum is going to be able to make enough money out of the Jotham Down store to keep that circus running. Ladies and gentlemen... In the following short scene, we find that the phone in Harry Benton's office is ringing. Let's see who's calling. Hello? Who? Oh, send him up, Miss Lawrence. <laughs> Bill Jackson. Wonder what he's doing in town. Oh, hey, this way, Bill. Oh, there you are. New office, huh? Yeah. Well, how have you been, Bill? Okay, how's yourself? Can't complain. In town for long? Long enough for lunch. Come on, let's go. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. Not right away. You wouldn't turn me down. Oh, no. I'll be with you pretty soon. Sit down and wait. And starve? Not me. Hungry, eh? I'll soon fix that. I don't know how. No one's ever done so yet. Tell you what, I'll make a deal. What sort of deal? If I can fix your hunger without spoiling your appetite, you buy me a lunch. Otherwise, I buy you one. On the level? On the level. Count me in. Lead out that magic meal. No, it's not a meal, but it does seem as if it's magic. Just Horlicks malted milk tablets. Horlicks, eh? Hmm? Why, we give them to the youngsters. Yeah? Well, just dissolve a couple of these in your own mouth while I start thinking about that lunch you're paying for. And Harry's right. Horlick's tablets never fail to ward off that hungry feeling. And they don't spoil appetites. You'll find them very handy around the office, as well as useful on many occasions. Get a flask from your druggist in either natural or chocolate flavor. This is Carlton Bricker, speaking for Lum and Abner and Horlick's, who now bid you all good night and good health. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a hit-and-run felony detail. A dead body is found in the streets in the early hours of the morning. There's only one clue, a set of skid marks on the pavement. Your job... Find the killer. If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke extra mild Fatima. Yes, Fatima is the king-size cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make it extra mild. To give Fatima a much different, 
Much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. Enjoy extra mild Fatima yourself. Best of all, long cigarettes. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, April 19th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of traffic division. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Lieutenant Calfee, Commander AID. My name's Friday. It was 7.55 a.m. when I got to the second floor at 123 South Figueroa Street. Accident investigation. Hit and run felony detail. Hit and run felony. Morning, Joe. George? Yeah. How is it? Oh, it's not much better. Still aching. Oh, rough. Well, lousy thing. Kept me up most of the night. Check with that dentist that told you about? Yeah, I did. Says it's a wisdom tooth. Yeah? This one here. Oh, yeah. Says it's got to come out. I'm supposed to go back and see him today. That's rough. Remember, a friend of mine had his wisdom teeth out. Hurt like the devil. Terrible. Finally pulled him. Ached for five, six days after. Roger. Oh, excuse me, Joe. Yeah, McD. Better have a 15 7 on that follow up you had yesterday, huh? Okay. I got most of it down. I'll finish it up. Friday? Hi. Ben, come in yet? He's down the record bureau. Let's see that jaw of yours. Hmm. Hasn't gone down much. It's a bad wisdom tooth. Dennis says he's going to have to yank it. Bum deal, man. That's the first time I ever had any trouble with him. I remember a few years back, my sister Gertrude had trouble with a wisdom tooth. Impacting. Yeah? Whole side of her face was swollen. Poor kid was in terrible pain. Full week. Even after they pulled it, it still hurt. Uh Hi, Joe. Uh, Picked up the overnight reports down at Records, Mac. Here you are. Oh, thanks, Ben. This one on top here. I'd like to have you two check it out. Uh, dead body report. Yeah. I left me a note on it. That's about all. Hard to figure. What's the story? Just what you see in the report. The victims. Edward Raymond Stokes, 732 Delano Street, apartment 2. His body was found in the gutter near 63rd in Vermont, 3 o'clock this morning. No witnesses. Only one piece of evidence. Yeah, see, they got it listed here. Skid marks near the body. Is that all? That's it. Parent hit and run. Where's the body, man? Neighborhood mortuary out there. Emerald Hills Funeral Home. One of the deputy coroners handled the body. A fellow named Joe Larimore. Anybody claim it yet? No. Okay. Ben, you ready? Yeah, let's go. I'm going to check you later, man. Yeah. If you need any help, I've got McClendon and Rogers on hand. Right. How do we manage to draw all the choice ones? I don't know. Skid marks and a dead body. Yeah. Oh, say, I almost forgot. How's your jaw? Oh, it still hurts. Oh, it's tough. Yeah, it's still swollen. Mm-hmm. What did Dennis say? Wisdom tooth. Oh, it's miserable. Yeah. Wife had the same thing a couple of years back. Dennis tried to yank the tooth and it broke right in two. Finally got it out. That's good. Funny thing about wisdom teeth. What's that? After they pull them. Hurts for five or six days. Eight 
8.33 a.m., Ben and I drove out to 63rd in Vermont and rechecked the spot where the dead body of Edward Stokes had been found. According to the report, the body was found two feet west of the Easterly Curb and 32 north of 63rd Street on Vermont. We examined the skid marks. They showed definite signs of being a lot older than 24 hours. The consistency of the rubber was weak, and there were heavy dirt smudges over them, indicating more wear than they could have possibly had since the estimated time of the victim's death. We got back in the car and drove to the Emerald Hills Funeral Home at Vernon and Denver Avenue. Sure is rotten weather for April, huh? Yeah. These funeral homes, you ever notice it? What's that? Why do they always put awnings over the windows? They never open drapes. I don't know. Come on. Funeral going on. You know where the office is? There's a brass plate on that door over there. Let's have a look. Yes, sir? Here's somebody, Joe. Oh. Gentlemen, may I be of service? Police officers. I'd like to talk to Mr. Larimore. I believe he's a deputy coroner. Hi, Mr. Larimore. You came about the hit-and-run victim? Yeah, that's right. This is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday. We'd like to check the body if we could. Certainly. It's back this way. Understand you moved the body from the scene of the accident here to the mortuary. Yes, that's right. Early this morning. Unusual case... Careful, there's two steps down just inside the door. Thank you. Why do you say it's unusual, Mr. Larimore? Well, here, let me show you. There. Now, for one thing, the victim had a basal skull fracture. I don't know about you gentlemen, but in the hit-and-run cases I've handled, a basal fracture is a pretty rare thing. Well, it is possible, isn't it? Yes, it's possible. Anything's possible, as they say. But it's not usual... And a few other things here, too. Yeah. Notice the victim's knee here. Single, clean cut. Also, these wounds on the head. I've never seen anything like it in hit-and-run cases I've been called on. Yeah, that wound on the knee doesn't jive, does it? If he was hit by a car, the knee should be skinned up quite a bit. Exactly. Well, you know how it usually is. The automobile hits the victim. There's always signs that the body was either dragged or thrown. Shredding of clothing, skin, knees, legs, elbows. No sign of that here. You don't think the victim could have been killed by hit-and-run cars, eh? No, I don't say that. It's possible that it might have been a car, but... Well, let's say it's not very probable. Has anybody at all inquired about the body, Mr. Larimore? No one, no. That's funny. Oh, uh, Mr. Larimore? Yeah, I see you in a minute, All right, Tom. Excuse me a moment? Yeah, sure. Well? Yeah. Where do we start? I don't know. Maybe we won't have to. Hmm? Another lead like this, we can turn it over to homicide. Sergeant? Yeah? There's a young lady in the lobby. Yeah. She wants to claim the body. The girl was shown the body. She identified it as that of Edward Raymond Stokes. She gave her name as Marion Fuller, the victim's common-law wife. After she recovered from her shock, she asked if she might sit down for a while and rest. We took her into one of the offices in the mortuary and Ben got her a glass of water. She told us that she had last seen Stokes alive at about 1 a.m. that morning. They'd been drinking together at a neighborhood bar on Vermont Avenue between 63rd and 64th Streets, half a block from where the victim's body had been found sprawled in the gutter. Why don't you sit down over there, Miss Fuller? Thanks. How long did you know Edward Stokes, Miss Fuller? About six years, on and off. We've been together pretty much the last couple of years, though. 
Do you mind telling us exactly what happened while you were with Stokes last night? Everything you can remember? I can't think. This headache's killing me. I wish you'd try, Miss Fuller. It's important. Well, Nettie and I had dinner together at the Spanish oven, place down on South Fig. That was about a quarter to eight. Then we drove out to the Brown Barrel in Vermont, the bar I told you about. Yeah. Eddie and I go there most of the time. We stayed there and drank, played a little shuffleboard. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, we stayed too long, drank a little too much. I started talking to this fellow next to me, and he got sore. Always got jealous when he was drunk. Poor Eddie. Did Eddie fight with this other man, Miss Ford? No, no, I stopped him. That made Eddie mad. He never could drink right. He always wanted to pick a fight. Who was the other man? you remember? No, I don't. I guess I had a lot to drink, too. He's just some guy at the bar. His headache. Well, it's not going to take much longer. Just a few more questions. That organ's getting on my nerves. What happened after you broke up the argument between Stokes and the other man? Oh, nothing. We stayed in the bar. Eddie played shuffleboard most of the time. I was in one of the booths drinking. Yeah. Around one o'clock, I started feeling sick, so I went outside and sat in the car. I guess I passed out there. In your car? No. I guess it belonged to one of the fellows in the bar. I passed out, and that's all I can remember. Did you sleep in the car all night? No. I guess whoever owned it drove me home. Well, how did they know where you lived? Must have been one of her friends. I don't know. I don't remember anything until this morning. He phoned me up and said Eddie was dead. Who phoned you, Miss Fuller? One of our friends. I don't remember. I had a rotten headache. Well, you can do better than that. I tell you, I don't remember. He phoned and told me Eddie was dead. Somebody ran Eddie down. All right. Where are we going? Downtown. We'll have a stenographer take your statement. Oh, I've got a terrible hangover. I've never had one as bad as this. Neither has Eddie. Let's go. On the way back to the office, Ben stopped at a drugstore and I picked up a box of aspirin. The wisdom tooth was giving me trouble again. The clerk at the soda fountain fixed something for Marion Fuller's hangover. When we got her back to the office, we questioned her for more than an hour, but she gave us only one additional piece of information. The victim, Eddie Stokes, had been married before and divorced. His ex-wife lived out in the valley with their two children, and on several occasions she came to see Stokes at the Vermont Avenue bar when he failed to make the monthly payments for the support of the children. Each time they'd argued bitterly. We had a police stenographer take the floor woman's statement, and then she was released. 10.45 a.m., Sergeants Rogers and McClendon were assigned to check out the Vermont Avenue bar where Stokes had last been seen alive. Ben and I drove out to the valley to the home of Catherine Stokes, the victim's former wife. She met us on the front porch. Inside, it sounded like one of the children was practicing the piano. We told her what had happened. Last week, I think it was. Yes, Thursday last week. Eddie hadn't sent any money for the kids' support for three months. I hated to chase after him like that. There wasn't anything else I could do. Where did you meet him, Miss Stokes? That bar used to hang around. It's over on Vermont called the Brown Bell or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, wouldn't you like to come inside? Yes, thank you. Do you happen to know anybody by the name of Marion Fuller? Yes, Eddie mentioned her. There's a man seeing a woman like that. Do you know anything about her at all? Whenever I saw it, he'd mention he was running around with her. Yes, he wanted to make me jealous. Was your husband a pretty heavy drinker? Yes, he was. So I got the divorce. Eddie was such a fine boy when we got married. Good home. You didn't know any of the people he'd been running around with lately? No, just the fuller woman, that's all. Can you think of anything at all that might possibly have a bearing on his death? No. Eddie was probably drinking. 
Wanted in the street and a car hit him. I don't know. Oh, there's the bakery man. I've got to get some bread and a few things. Excuse me? I think that's about all, don't you, Joe? Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll leave our card here, Miss Stokes, in case you want to contact us for any reason. All right. Wonderful when we were married, Eddie and I. My folks gave us this house as a wedding present. We got wonderful presents. Yeah. We had everything we wanted. Car, nice house, kids. It was wonderful that we started drinking. Then everything went. Job, everything. Started all of a sudden. I never knew why. Yes, ma'am. How do men get that way? How do they start? I don't know. We only see a part of it. Yeah. When they finish. Twelve noon, Ben and I drove back into town to Vermont and 63rd Street for a meet with Sergeants Rogers and McClendon. They told us that they checked out the bartender who'd been on duty the night before and also seven of his customers. Their stories were almost identical. Each of them remembered seeing Eddie Stokes at the bar. Each of them remembered he was playing shuffleboard, that he was drinking heavily, and that he left the bar at about 1.45 a.m. All of us had the idea that for some reason the bartender and the customers were lying. In most cases, it's hard to find two witnesses who tell identical stories, let alone seven. For the rest of that afternoon, Rogers, McClendon, Ben and I spent our time canvassing the neighborhood in the vicinity of the Brown Barrel Tavern. 4.45 p.m. We talked to the proprietor of a small grocery store two blocks down the street from the tavern. He told us that he rarely visited the bar, but that he thought that the man who ran the butcher shop next to his place, uh, Mr. Eugene Murray, was a regular patron of the Brown Barrel. So we went next door. Would you make that two pounds of ground ground, Mr. Murray? We're having company tonight. Yes, ma'am, two pounds. Nice-looking meats, on you? Yeah, the steaks look good, don't they? Mm-hmm. Two pounds. All right. Anything else now, Mrs. Gidney? Got some nice, fresh kidneys today. No, well, George won't touch kidneys. That'll be all. You put it on the bill, won't you, Mr. Murray? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Mm, you're welcome. Yes, sir, gentlemen. Can I help you? Police officers, Mr. Murray. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, I'm sure. Glad to help out if I can. Have you ever been in the Brown Barrel Tavern down the next block there? Brown Barrel? I go there all the time. Say, would you mind if I fix up an order while we're talking? The customer's going to pick it up in a couple of minutes. I don't like to keep him waiting. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, i, I got to go to the ice park. When's the last time you were in the Brown Barrel, Mr. Murray? Last night. Wife and I went to the movies. One of them English pictures. Lousy pictures. We dropped in at the barrel on the way home for a beer. About what time was that? Pretty close to two... <laughs> What's the matter? Some kind of trouble? Did you notice anything unusual while you were in there? Anybody fighting or arguing? No, we were only in there a couple of minutes, but now that you mention it, there was something funny happened. What was that? Well, the bartender Carl and a half dozen of the neighborhood gang were back in one of the booths talking together. They seemed kind of nervous, and none of them seemed to be having a good time. Yeah. The wife and I yelled hello at them, but they kind of gave us a go-by. Then this uh, drunk came up to us. Uh, any, uh, say, officer, would you reach that knife for me? Which one? Uh, that one. Oh, yeah, here you are. Yeah, thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, this uh, drunk came up to us and whispers to me, say, you better get out of here. There's been a fight. Hey, isn't that a beautiful piece of meat? Well, I didn't pay much attention to him. He was pretty drunk, could hardly understand him. I 
I guess they have a lot of fights in there anyway. Is that all he told you? There'd been a fight? Yeah, that time. But he came back a couple of minutes later and whispered the same thing. You better get out. There's been a fight, he said. The wife and I just laughed at him. Mm -hmm. He said, I know all about it. A guy's been murdered. You are listening to Dragnet, the case history of a police investigation presented in the public interest by Fatima Cigarettes. Fatima, the long cigarette that has more than doubled its smokers coast to coast. And there's a very good reason for this amazing increase. Men and women everywhere are finding out it's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. I agree, says Dick Highland, sports columnist. I agree, says Shirley Gelman, registered nurse. I agree, says Frank Fenton, author. I agree, says Nancy Appel, news writer. Yes, all agree. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. So, enjoy extra mild Fatima yourself. The king-size cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos, superbly blended to make it extra mild. You will prefer Fatima's much different, much better flavor and aroma. You will agree. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. Best of all, long cigarettes. Six p.m. Ben and I went back to Homicide to turn the case over to them. They asked us to handle the investigation for another day because they were short of men at the moment and because there was still a big doubt as to whether or not Eddie Stokes had really been murdered. Actually, the only solid lead we had was the second-hand testimony of a drunken witness, that, and the deputy coroner's doubts that Stokes was actually the victim of a hit-and-run. Mr. Murray, the butcher, didn't know the name of the man who told him that there'd been a murder, and he could give us only a meager description. We brought Marion Fuller back in and re-questioned her. She stuck to her story. She didn't remember anything. She was released again. It looked like we were in for a long night. We went across the street for a bowl of soup and a sandwich, and when we got back, Ben called his wife and told her he'd be working late. I called my mother. Working late again? Oh, Joseph. How's your tooth feeling? Well, it's a little better, Ma. It's still pretty tender. I'm going to go to the dentist tomorrow. Yes, you've got to have that attended to right away. Bad teeth can poison your whole system. You be sure and see that dentist. Is he a good one? Yeah, he's okay. One of the fellas down here told me about him. I'll see you a little later, huh? Don't wait up. Yes. And you don't work too late, Joseph. You need your rest. Yeah, okay, Ma. Goodbye. All right, Joseph. Goodbye. Joe. Yeah? Just talk to that butcher's wife on the phone, Miss Murray. What'd she have to say? Ask her the same questions we asked Murray. She couldn't add much. Same story. You got something for you? Yeah, man. Rogers and McClendon just called in. They're still out at that bar. Yeah? Finally got somebody to talk a little. What'd they get? The bar boy out there. He says there was a fight happened about 1.30. Doesn't remember who was fighting. Not much help. Bar boy's name is Milner. He told Rogers he went outside about 20 minutes to 2 to put the garbage out. He saw the Fuller woman asleep in that car. You get the license number? No. Said there was a ticket on the windshield. Ben and I checked with the sergeant of the watch at 77th Street Division. He told us Unit 111 was assigned to the area where the brown barrel was located. In checking their worksheet, we found that Unit 111 had issued a hang-on citation the night before to a car parked near 6330 and one-half Vermont Avenue, the address of the Brown Barrel Tavern. We checked the license number through DMV and found that the car was registered to a William R. Huddy, 14 Naylor Street. We drove out to the Naylor Street address and talked to Huddy's wife. 
She told us he was playing in a shuffleboard tournament that night at a bar down on South Olive Street. 8.55 p.m., we checked in at the bar. Bartender. Oh, yes, sir. What'll it be? You know if there's a William Huddy in here? He's supposed to be playing a shuffleboard game here tonight. Oh, yeah, I know. He's with the Highland Park team. Yeah, let me see. Yeah, that's him up now, out on the blue shirt. Thank you. Come on, Ben. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it, Bill. Good wait. Make it another three. That cleans him. Good one, Bill. Yeah, that's pretty close to beat that one, Max. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah? Are you William Huddy? Yeah, that's right. Police officers. We'd like to talk to you a minute. Oh? What about? I'd like to ask you a few questions. You step over here a minute. Yeah, all right. Were you at the Brown Barrel Tavern out in Vermont last night? Yeah, I was. Why, what's the matter? You know uh, Marion Fuller? Yeah, yeah, she hangs around the place. She goes with a guy named Eddie. Did you drive her home last night? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. She passed out in my car. She's a nice kid, but she drinks a lot. I drove her home. Do you mind telling us what happened at the bar last night when you were there? Well, I come in about 9 o'clock and I start playing shuffleboard with a couple of guys. This guy, Eddie Stokes, he's one of them. Yeah? Well, he got in a beef with a guy at the bar over Marion. It's nothing big, though. Guy left after a while. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. That's about all. I left the place around 1.30 and they said he was beefing with some merchant seamen about that time. Was the Fuller girl still at the bar at that time? No, when I went outside, I saw her sleeping in my car, so I drove her home. I left her off and then come back to the bar. That's when they told me. Told you what? Well, they said Eddie had a fight with this merchant seaman. They said it'd be better if we kept it quiet. Who told you that? Call a bartender. And I got the real story from one of the fellows I was playing shuffleboard with, Leo McCarty. What did he tell you? Well, he said that when Eddie Stokes left, the merchant seaman followed him out. He said he chased Eddie. McCarty went out about five minutes later. Yeah. Well, the merchant seaman was gone, and Stokes was lying in the gutter down the street. Mm-hmm. Did McCarty look at him? Yeah, he said Stokes looked pretty bad. He said he looked like he was dead, but I, I wouldn't believe that. Why not? This McCarty always exaggerates. 10.15 p.m., we had William Huddy come back to the office with us where we questioned him further and took his statement. Then we had his friend Leo McCarty brought in along with a bartender at the Brown Barrel Tavern and the customers that he'd framed his story with. McCarty was the first to give us the straight story and then the others followed. The bartender, Carl Jansen, who also owned the bar, was the last to break. How about it, Jansen? Why didn't we get a straight story to begin with? What about the publicity? How how would that look? A murder around my place. Could work out worse than that, Mr. Jansen. You've been withholding evidence. You talked these people into the same deal. I'd protect myself. Newspapers, all the... Scandal recommends business. I had to keep it quiet. It's not my fault that Stokes is killed. I, I didn't do it. I'm not to blame. No, but you know who is to blame. Now, how about it? Who is he? Well, he works on the ships. Comes in here most of the time when he's important. What's his name? Henry Baxter. I've cashed some of his paychecks. Ben, you better get the captain, huh? Yeah. Hit and run felony Friday. Oh, yeah. No, just a minute. For you, Jansen. Thank you. Yes. Oh. Yes, Rita, just a minute. Sergeant. Yeah. It's my wife. She's at the bar now. She thought you ought to know. Yeah. Henry Baxter. Frida says he just came in. (laughs) 
I talked to Jansen's wife and told her to delay Baxter as long as possible without arousing his suspicions. 11.25 p.m. Ben and I and Mr. Jansen, along with Rogers and McClendon, drove out to the Brown Barrel Tavern on Vermont. When we got there, Baxter was gone. Mrs. Jansen told us he was pretty drunk by the time he left the bar. She'd watched him go down one block, cross the street, and then enter a small nightclub on the opposite side called the Pink Shamrock. She'd been keeping an eye on the place, and as far as she knew, Baxter was still inside. We went down the street to the nightclub. Rogers and McClendon covered the back entrance. We got inside in the middle of a floor show. A blonde was doing some kind of a dance. Can you spot him, Mr. Jansen? No. No, I don't see him yet. How about over on this side, back in the corner there? No. No, he's not there. It's so dark in here, I can't see too well. There's the rear exit to the place. He could have slipped out that way. Gentlemen, I'd like to have a picture taken. Souvenir photograph? No, no thanks. Maybe we better check with the waiter, Ben. All right, sorry, just a minute. That man over there at that table. Where? Yeah, yeah, I'm almost positive. Where? Right, right there next to that pillar. Just behind it, you see. Yeah. Yeah, that's him, that's him. All right, come on, Ben. You stay right here, Mr. Jansen. You bet. Waiter. Hey, waiter. Another Coke high. You waiters, another Coke high. Your name is Henry Baxter? Yeah, that's right. What? Police officers like to talk to you. Yeah. Well, sit down. Outside. Outside nothing. You never see a show. Let's go outside. Come on, Baxter. Hey, wait a minute. What's the beef, anyway? You know what the beef is? Sure, I know what the beef is. Come on, let's go. The lousy punk got his stokes trying to give me a bad time. Now he knows what a bad time is. Right, come on. Lousy punk stokes. I showed him how it's done. You keep your voice down. I slugged him. Pounded his head on the curb. He was drunk. He never knew what happened. Come on, outside. Hey, everybody. I killed Eddie Stokes. I killed him. Get him out of here. Yeah, okay. How's that tooth feel, Joe? Seems okay. Better have the dentist yank it out first thing tomorrow. Oh, I think I'll hold off a while. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. On July 30th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. It's amazing how many long cigarette smokers are changing to extra mild Fatima. Here is the actual report. From coast to coast, extra mild Fatima has more than doubled its smokers. Yes, more and more smokers every day are discovering that Fatima is the king-size cigarette that is extra mild. Extra mild because it contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make it extra mild, to give it a much different, much better flavor and aroma. Enjoy extra mild Fatima yourself. Best of all long cigarettes. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. It's wise to smoke extra mild Fatima. <laughs> Henry John Baxter was tried and convicted in Superior Court of Manslaughter. He received the sentence as prescribed by law and is now serving his term in the state penitentiary. 
crossed her dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Sarah Berner stars in Sarah's Private Caper, next on NBC. gasoline. Let every traffic signal remind you, you do go farther with signal gasoline. Yes, you do go farther with signal. Log entry number 726. This is the story of a journey among the stars. An intergalactic adventure so astounding that even now, as the great trauma draws to its close, I find it difficult to believe it actually happened. But the evidence is there. What we have all been through was no bad dream, nor the figment of some crazy imagination. Even now, we cannot survive, except by the intervention of a miracle. We could still be pursued, attacked, and totally destroyed. And even if we escape our pursuers, we haven't enough air or food to last the long journey home. When at last we do come within the influence of the gravitational field of the Earth, our vessel will automatically go into orbit round it. At some time, the ship must be sighted, boarded and salvaged, but none of us will be alive. The craft that is now our home will by then be our flying tomb. So, for the record, I intend to set down a full account of the amazing things that have befallen us. It all began many Earth years ago, during the summer, the northern summer of 2010. Or maybe that is still in the future. I cannot be sure. Even time seems to have slipped out of joint. Zero minus thirty, twenty-nine, twenty-eight, twenty-seven... Anyhow, forward or backward, during the summer of the year 2010 A.D., we, that is, Space Commodore Saxonberry, astronautical engineer Lodric Sancier, Second Communications Officer Lemuel Chipper Barnett, and I, Professor Magnus, were setting off on what we thought was a regular, routine flight to the moon. We have takeoff. We present Space Force, an intergalactic encounter starring Barry Foster, Nigel Stock, Nicky Henson, and Tony Asobo. Episode 1, The Voice from Nowhere. Achieved escape velocity. Lunar trajectory established. You're on your own. Have a good trip. Thank you, Control. We'll call you later. Okay, we'll begin flight checks. Loderick, you go below and check motors. Right. I'll get some food. I'm virtually a passenger on this trip, so I might as well earn my keep. Oh, good, sir. Tend to the navigation readout, Chip. Doing it. Excuse me, Magnus. Yes, Loderick. Could you give me a hand with this helmet? I can't lock it. 
Oh, how long have you had this? Ever since I came on the moon run. It's well nigh worn out. <laughs> like everything else on this old tub. Perhaps I should indent for a new one. No need. Space Force will be supplying you with a completely new rig out. There. How's that? Fine. Communication all right? Loud and clear. I'll open the lock for you. Thank you. Won't be long. Don't get lost down there. Trouble with Lodrick is he's space struck. What's that? Wow, crazy on stars, astronomy and all that. Spends hours in the observation dome gazing at the sky. I can hear you. Well, it's true, isn't it? I would have thought stargazing a perfectly normal pastime for an astronaut. Well, depends, doesn't it? What do you mean? Chipper, how about that readout? Just doing it, Saxon. I'll cover the radiation check. Meanwhile, you transmit the first flight report for control. Right. Hello, control. Freighter 9 calling Earth control. Hello, Freighter 9, receiving you loud and clear. Here's the first navigation readout for flight number 024, April 9th, 2010. Zero hours, five minutes, universal time. We are spaceborne. Speed, 30,000.72. Estimated time of arrival, three days, 19 hours and 42 minutes. Flight information received. Your landing point will be given in due course. Transmission navigation report completed. Good. some refreshment. Let's relax. It's easier said than done. I'm too worked up. What will it be like, this Space Force? And the new ship. Have you seen it? Oh, it's large. Very large. The crew's quarters are very spacious. Well, comparatively. Better than this old crock, I bet. Oh, infinitely. Freight ships were never built for comfort. You can say that again. A couple of trips on this run soon knocked all romantic notions of space travel out of me. <laughs> Not much romance in dumping atomic waste on the moon. Sometimes I feel I know more than a universal flying dustman. And flying dust bin just about describes this old crate. Well, Space Force will be different. Latest and best equipment. Most powerful motors ever designed. Enough punch to send us to the end of the solar system and back. We should live that long. Well, it'll be exciting work. Exploration of new moons and planets. Is this a deep probe? Yes. How far? Well, we'll know when we're briefed, after we've touched down on moon base. Well, the secrecy. I didn't plan the trip. I've merely been appointed to command it. What do we let ourselves in for? Well, it must be better than dumping rubbish on the moon. Hello, Lunar Freighter 9. Flight number 024, Earth Control calling. Hello. Chipper, you wanted. So I hear. Hello, Earth Control, Freighter 9, Flight 024, receiving Hello, you over. Flight 024, Earth Control mm. calling. Will you answer, please? What do you think I'm doing? You've gone deaf or something? I repeat, Freighter 9, Flight 024, what can we do Freighter for you? Freighter 9, Flight 024, come in, please. They're not hearing me. They must be. Flight 024, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Flight Hello, 0 Control. 0 we're receiving you loud and clear. Something's wrong with their receiver. Or our transmitter. But we spoke to control right after takeoff. Hello, Freighter 9. Try Lunar Control. Hello, Lunar. Freighter 9, flight 024, calling Lunar Control. Need your assistance. Come in, please. If we establish contact... Hello, Earth Control. Lunar calling. Now, Lunar thinks we're Earth. Hello, listen, listen. We have lost contact with Freighter 9. Can you help? Hello, Luna. Hello, Earth. This is Freighter 9. We monitor we... your contact with Freighter 9 immediately after takeoff. Reception was good then. Well, it's not their receivers. Must be our transmitter. Listening watch, Luna. We'll do the same and call you in a few minutes. Chipper, you ground-tested this equipment before takeoff. Of course I did. Then what do you think could be wrong? Don't know. We're pumping out bags of power. It's as if we've no antenna. Oh, that's it. A fault with the antenna. What? Probably hasn't emerged, got stuck. Oh. It's happened before. Then how did you raise control after takeoff? Well, we were so near to Earth, they'd have picked us up if we'd been transmitting on a length of string. Can you check the aerial now, from in here? 
Well, according to the amateur, the aerial's working. Lodrick. Yes? Go to the forehead televiewer. See if the antenna's in place. No good. Why not? Televiewer's vision is blocked by the curve of the ship. Antenna can't be seen from inside. Not even from the observation dome? No. Then somebody will have to go out and inspect it. No contact with control means no automatic navigation, no progress reports, no assisted landing procedure, nothing. We'd have to manhandle the ship. Somebody must go outside, then. Put your suit on. Yes. Me? Your electronics and communications officer. Yes, I'll go. No, Lodrick, this is Chipper's job. But I've, I've never been outside. Not out there, in space. All astronauts are trained for it. Yes, but how many of them ever have to do it? Except in an emergency. This is an emergency. If there's something wrong with the antenna, it's got to be fixed. I suppose so. I'll help you with your suit. Oh, thanks, Lodrick. That's very generous. Remember, Chipper, it's perfectly safe. Just make sure your safety line is secure. Thanks for the encouragement. Now, if the antenna needs repair and you want help, Lodrick or I will join you. But don't call us out unless it's essential. Oh, great. Now, lock your helmet. How's communication? Loud and clear. All right. Open the airlock. Good luck, Chipper. Take it slowly now. You sure you wouldn't like me to go with him, Saxon? If he needs you, he'll ask. Yes, sir. How is it, Chipper? Okay. You can start pumping the air out. Space suit inflating. That's it? Everything okay? Yes. Have safety line, torch. You can open a cage and let me out. Move a step until the line is secured. Doing it. Done. Away you go then. Lodrick, stand by the furrow televiewer. See if you can follow his progress. Right. What a sight. What is? The earth. All silver and blue and so big. I'm sure you've seen that before. Never so close and not natural like this. Can you see the antenna? Not yet. I need to move forward. Gently does it. Don't push too hard. You'll go drifting off. Yeah, yeah, don't scare me. Ah, there it is. Well? Sticking out in front like the snout of a swordfish, just as it should be. Chipper now in view. Moving forward. Uh -huh. Can you get close? Yes. Then take a good look at it. Right. Can you still see him, Lodrick? Just disappearing around the ship's nose. Hello, Saxon. Yes, Chip. Everything appears to be in order. No reason why it shouldn't work. Can you carry out any kind of test? Well, not really, but you can. What can we do? Wait until I've moved back a couple of feet. Now, switch on the transmitter. How's that? What does the aerial ammeter read? Nine. No reason why it shouldn't be working. Hello, Earth. Lunar Freighter 9 calling. Hello. Hello, Saxon? Yes, I can hear you. What did you say? I said, yes, I can hear you. No, no, before that. Epsi, uh, Epsilon or something. Epsilon? Yes. I said nothing about Epsilon. There it is again. I don't hear anything. Do you, Magnus? No. Roderick? No. None of us hear anything. But you must. And that, well, music. 
Music? Well, a, a, a sort of music. Oh, blimey. What is it? Oh, oh I don't like this. Chipper! I'm coming back in. Oh, oh, help. Chipper, Chipper, can you hear me? It's Earth Control at last. They've heard us. You lift the transmitter on. Hello, Earth Control. Freighter 9, flight 024. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Where have you been? Having a little trouble right now. What kind of trouble? That's what we're trying to find out. Electrical or mechanical? Listen, we'll call you back. Chipper, Roger. Chipper. I think he must have passed out. I'll have to go and fetch him back. Be careful. Prepare the airlock while I get my suit on. Your landing point will be Area 17 in the Mare Serenatus near the crater vessel. Lunar latitude 22.75 degrees north and lunar longitude 18.32 degrees east. Hope Communication Officer Barnett has come to no serious harm. Well, he's still unconscious. They'll give you a routine call in two hours. Roger. Transmission to Earth Control completed. Thanks, Ludwig. Oh, he's coming round. Hand me that drink. Thanks. Oh, where am I? Don't worry. You're perfectly safe inside the ship. I thought I was outside. I was out there inspecting the antenna. That's right. Now, take a sip of this. Uh, and then that weird music and that voice. Yeah, we heard no voice, nor music. Well, I did. And pretty horrible it was, too. It seemed me right inside my head, frightened the life out of me. Take it easy. And it, it kept saying Epsilon. Epsilon um, Solar, that's it. Epsilon Solar. What's Epsilon? It's the fifth letter of the ancient Greek alphabet. So what would Epsilon Solar mean? <sighs> Very little. It, it makes no sense. Then why should somebody keep repeating now it? Now listen, Chipper. You've had a bad experience. I know that. We believe you received an electric shock from the antenna when you asked me to switch on the transmitter. But I moved away, especially to avoid that. It seems you didn't move far enough. Your mind was playing you tricks. While you were in a state of semi-consciousness, you interpreted our voices coming over the intercom as something else. Now, do you remember drifting off to the end of your safety line? No. Saxon had to haul you in. You've been out cold until a few moments ago. None of you heard anything? No. No music? No. Or voices? No. Then I suppose you all think I imagined it. Seems like it. Now, why don't you lie still and let that drink take effect? In an hour or two, you'll feel fine. Lunar Freighter 9, Flight 024, calling Lunar Control. Hello, Flight 024. You're loud and clear. Routine report number 27, flight number 024. Time since takeoff, two days, 13 hours, 54 minutes UT. All well here. Their normal landing procedure will be in 10 hours, 50 minutes from now. Retrograde motors will be fired and landing speed controlled by us. Am I understood? Normal landing procedure beginning in 10 hours, 50 minutes from now. Landing point 17 near Crater Bessel. Correct. We'll carry out final inspection of ship and cargo and call again two hours before landing time. Roger, and good luck. Flight report transmission completed. Good. Ten hours to landing procedure. 
Plenty of time to carry out routine inspections. I'd like to come with you, if I won't be in the way. Uh, nothing much to see, Magnus, but you're welcome. Just put your helmet on. Oh, thanks. And you two can take it easy for a bit. I'd like to go into the observation dome for a while. Certainly. Enjoy your stargazing. Come on, Magnus. Let's get below. You staying here then, Chipper? While you're stargazing, I shall indulge in a little TV gazing. I brought three new videos this trip, and this is the first chance I've had to see even one uh, of them. Oh, not old Western films. You like stars, I like old Westerns. Didn't you bring anything this time? Yes, I did. Here. What's that? It's a Cassegrainian. Very rare. 18th century. It's like a telescope Nelson held to his blind eye. What would you do with a thing like that? It was used for some serious work in its day. But not at sea. No, it's the wrong kind of instrument for that. This is an astronomical instrument. Wouldn't show much, would it? Telescope that size? Oh, I admit it's only a three-inch mirror. Well, not a mirror, really. It's highly polished metal. But it worked very well when I tried it down on Earth. Where'd you get it? I picked it up at an auction. Uh... I expected to perform even better up here, outside the Earth's atmosphere. How many of these things you've got now? Seventeen. All ages and sizes. But mostly 19th century. This is the oldest. You're dying to try it out. <laughs> is there room for it in the observation dome? Just. We'll have a good time. You too. See you later. Enjoy your westerns. Not off. I'll have that then. The Magnificent Seven. That'll do for a start. Ah, westerns beat space fiction any day. What's that? Oh. oh, no, it's here again. What? Oh, oh. Saxon. Magnus. Help. Help. Good grief, what a mess. Get your helmet off, quick. Lottery, when you've got your helmet off, get the first aid box. Yes, sir. Hey, Chipper, come on, wake up. The TV, it's completely wrecked. Bits floating all over the place. Here you are. Thanks, Lottery. Now call up Lunar and Earth Controls, make sure we're still in contact. Right. Oh, he's coming round. Oh, Magnus, where'd you come from? What's you doing? Wiping the blood away. Blood? You've a nasty cut above the left eye. What happened, Chipper? The TV blew up in my face. I can see that, but how? What caused it? I can't say. I just put the video cassette on, expecting a normal Western with a few gunfights. It looks as though you had them. But instead, I got this weird noise. The same sound I heard outside. A terrible penetrating sound and someone, a woman, screaming about epsilon, atoms and DNA. Are you sure you put the right cassette on? Yes. Look for yourself. Was the woman in the picture? I don't know. Picture broke up, all lines and zigzags, but the music and her voice were there. It was overwhelming. And the screen shattered. Next thing I remember is looking up at you. Here, I drink this. Magnus, come over to the navigation table, will you? Chipper, you stay where you are. Don't move. Well, it's certainly not his imagination this time. Bits of the TV floating all around the cabin is real enough. First, the antenna doesn't function. Then the video machine blows itself up, and both times, Chipper, who happens to be close to both, is completely knocked out. But first he hears strange music, and stranger voices, or so he says. What was he said he heard? Epsilon Solar. 
The, the, the height of human beings. Atomic numbers for hydrogen and carbon. And the skinny triangle. Among other things. Well, somewhere I've come across that same odd list before. Oh? When? Oh, years ago. When I was a student. University? No, no, after that. At the School of Astronautic Science. I took a special course in extraterrestrial physics. Well, how does that have any bearing on Chipper's old western wrecking the TV? Give me a little time. I might answer that. Uh, could I call Earth Control and ask them to put me in touch with the school? Of course. Meanwhile, Lodric and I will start tidying the place up. It looks as though all hell's broken loose in here. If my hunch is right, it probably has. What? Do you have a headpiece I can use? I wouldn't like Chipper to hear what I'm saying. Oh. Yes, just plug your intercom into the receiver. It'll automatically cut out the loudspeaker. Ah. Thanks. Well, did you get what you wanted? Is Chipper awake? Fully. I'll need to talk to him. Go ahead. How are you feeling, Chipper? Oh, all right. Could you answer a few questions? Okay. That voice, that woman's voice you heard on the videotape, what did it say exactly? Oh, I can't remember exactly, but it was something about Epsilon Solar... Thank you for your message. The atomic numbers of various chemicals, the height of man, population of the Earth, and the skinny triangle, whatever that is. She finished up with, hear this. But as the TV blew up at that point, I didn't hear anything. Now think. Think carefully. Have you ever been told or read about Arecibo? Are you? No, not who. It. Arecibo's a telescope. Oh, Lodrick's the one that knows about telescopes, don't you, Lodrick? I collect old brass optical no, telescopes. No, 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 no. No, this is a radio telescope, actually. Oh. Chipper, you've never knowingly heard or read about the Arecibo? Or perhaps seen a picture of it sometime? No, I'm a simple communications officer. Radio astronomy is out of my field. What's this got to do with the TV blowing up? The Arecibo was engaged in highly important work. It was used to beam messages into space, deep space in the hope that if the signals were ever picked up, they would be acknowledged. We'd then have proof of other beings inhabiting the universe besides ourselves. But how do you send a message to people you don't know, who don't speak your language? And whose civilizations could be so different they couldn't make sense of what you're saying, even if they heard the signal. The Arecibo operators had thought of that. They figured that the same physical laws must apply right through the universe. The conditions that produce life on Earth would produce life on any other planet. And mathematical laws, the laws of chemistry, they must be the same throughout all creation. Any other beings advanced enough to have radio receivers must be as aware of the natural universal laws as we are. So, the kind of signals sent contain simple chemical and mathematical formulae. Descriptions of human beings and the solar system. And the skinny triangle. The great skinny triangle, with a very small baseline and one extremely small angle. It enabled Earth-bound astronomers to measure the diameter of planets and even the distance of certain stars. Well, I still don't see the connection between all that and the Magnificent Seven. That voice you picked up, Chipper was repeating the message sent out by Arecibo, and... And I picked it up. No, not the message. The reply. Hey, Where from? Well, the message was directed towards the constellation Centaurus. Oh, 
That seems too fantastic to be true. Arecibo's main target was the star Alpha Centauri. That's the closest star to our solar system. Four and a half light years away. In other words, a spaceship travelling non-stop at the speed of light would take four and a half years to reach it. Exactly the time it would take a radio message. And four and a half years to get back the reply. Is that what all that row was? A reply to Arecibo's message to outer space? Most likely, yes. Then what we need is for Arecibo to reply to their reply. It's not as simple as that. The Arecibo was broken up for scrap. But their message? You said Arecibo sent it. Yes, but more than 30 years ago. Way back in the 1970s. 1970s? And we've only just heard? After more than 30 years? Yes. From a distant star? Probably. Now, wait a minute, Magnus. Are you suggesting that intelligent beings more than 15 light years away from Earth are trying to contact us? I think they've done it. But that voice, so loud, and in English, it, it could have been coming from the moon or the Earth. Exactly. You mean they are on the moon? Maybe not on the moon, but close, very close. I believe, gentlemen, that we are on the brink of a space-age breakthrough. What? Personal contact with extraterrestrial beings. In that episode of Space Force, Chipper was played by Nicky Henson, Magnus by Nigel Stock, Saxon by Barry Foster, and Lodrick by Tony Osoba, with Wendy Murray and Teresa Stretfield. Space Force was written by Charles Chilton and produced by Paul Mayhew Archer. Listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.